0: Black Jack with Griffin and David. Black Jack with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need
1: to know is that the name of the show is Black Jack. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Doc. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a podcast?
2: That was pretty good. I kind of like that. Podcasts. Where we're going. We don't need podcasts. That was good. But I'm just more into your Michael J. Fox just because it's like... Oh, you know who where? has a Michael you, J. Fox?
1: You think I'm yeah. well <laughs> suited to a Michael J. Fox impression over a Christopher Lloyd impression?
2: <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Look,
1: hey, he's a, hey, he's Doc. he's, a, he's a,
2: on the smaller side. Sure, Doc. he's a little squirrely. Hmm. Doc. Um, uh, 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 yes, Marty. No. I don't know. I can't do him. No, I'm sorry. You go ahead. You
3: go ahead, Ben. Go ahead. Do your thing. Doc. Marty, you made it. Yeah. Welcome to my ladies' experiment. This is the big one—the one I've been waiting for all my life. Uh,
1: well, it's it's a DeLorean, right?
3: Bear with me, Marty. All of your questions will be answered. Roll tape, and we'll podcast. (laughs) And really wants to do that one. I think ben I was good. so
1: hyped to do that one. Yeah, it's like saying that we're rolling tape, even though we've now been recorded for a minute. Also, Ben, should we mention you're wearing sunglasses? You've decided to go full Marty McFly you, for this listen, episode.
3: You gotta. This is a requirement for our listeners. You gotta pop your collar. You gotta roll mm. your sleeves up and throw on some sure. shades if you got them.
1: I mean, he's got like a rolled sleeve, but he's also got like a a five layer thing going on. Oh wait, hold I hold always on. have I just an gotta interesting gotta pop t- my oh. soda. Jesus Christ! Ben got a glass bottle of Coke, and he's just up wow. the cap. How many props cool, did you ben. buy for this? You also asked if you could skateboard into the episode. Yeah, which I mean, <laughs> it seems like that's not going to be
3: happening. I just, I don't need no. to
2: stomp all over it, Ben, but I feel like you yeah. abandoned the
3: skateboard into the podcast. Well, plan. I was going to be, of course, like hanging on the back of a truck, and I would have then skateboarded into the episode that way.
1: Look, I'll give you an entire episode to figure out how to hang tailpipe. All right. I'm trying to think of like a, a good
2: uncle fester quote that's my favorite christopher lloyd whoa that, oh is, wait you're you're giving me a woe for for that declaration yeah alone I mean, this... that, that i'm just picking him over doc brown i assume i assume i maybe, guess maybe he should have taxi. won the oscar for
1: this performance
2: yeah oh, he's great in this movie but have you seen and
1: heard of uncle fester i have for your information pretty, motherfucker pretty cool i I watched both of those movies recently. He's incredible in them. We will soon be rewatching Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's incredible in that. And I have watched all of Taxi, and he is unbelievable in that. His run he is. was incredible. Incredible. And those are very different roles. Doom, Fester, Reverend yeah. Jim, Doc Brown. Yeah.
2: Is there something worth forgetting? I'm trying to remember. Is there anything else in his...
1: That, I mean, that's the right real golden man? run. He had other, like,
2: big movies, but that's... Those guess, are the top-tier
1: things. He's in Trek.
2: Don't forget. You haven't seen it, but, you know, Commander Cruz, that's a great performance. I guess he's
1: in Clue. Oh, wow. That was fun. Right. Uh, there's the, the Dream Team, a movie that I like that's Michael Keaton, Christopher Lloyd, Peter Bull, Stephen Root. Yeah, no, never seen that one. A um, g- g- great great g- great gang the, the the you know the quartet the, great gang. We love the boys I call them the boys um,
2: of course switchblade Sam we've shouted him out in Dennis the Menace right. of course well that's we that's when we're knowledge. getting into
1: the 90s period and then you yeah, have that's, uh, still that's before
2: uh, Adam's family value so I'm counting it sh- you got the page the year master the page master
1: radio land murders a uh, camp nowhere which I feel like is a big Ben movie Am I correct Camp in that? Nowhere, Ben? I've does never that, seen it. That does it. strike me. Wow. Oh, really? Okay, that's... No, you know what I it think is? you'd enjoy. It's Bushwhacked. I got confused. Bushwhacked is the movie you love, right, Ben? Well, I don't know. I don't know Bushwhacked either. What? You don't know... No. Are, are you kidding me? I feel like you've
3: talked right, about okay, Bushwhacked Okay, i
2: Mouchette, that's the movie you love, right, Ben? Let's just keep naming movies. <laughs> um, it's that thing, Griffin, of like you've got this run here and then the 90s where like it's like he's consistently above the title like you think of the page master or like angels in the outfield right you know that that
1: that that era my favorite martian of course right camp nowhere i always associate with bushwhacked and that they're both like hey kids here's that like supporting actor you loved in your movie let's try to build an entire movie around their persona Mm-hmm. And it's like too much when they're kind of the sole lead.
2: I've never seen Bushwick, but that is Daniel Stern, correct? That's a right. that's sort of like a, a was basically intended as like let's just take Daniel Stern's Home Alone thing
1: it's and he'll, kids he'll terrorizing be Daniel right. Stern, right? Right, right and right, then right, right. Camp Nowhere is kind of uh, accepted as sort of a stealth remake of Camp Nowhere. It's kids hire like a burnout to pretend to be a camp director. You just said Camp Nowhere
2: twice. I assume it's a remake of something else.
1: Accepted. Didn't I say accepted?
2: You said, oh, you, oh, I thought you were saying (laughs) it's accepted that Camp Nowhere is a remake. No, 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 my friend. (laughs) Like you were saying like, look, broad consensus is formed around a few issues, you know, in in American life, one of which, of course, is that Camp Nowhere... He's a remake yes. of Camp Nowhere. Uh, no, I see, accepted ex- the Justin
1: Long College <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I saw Camp Nowhere in theaters. I do not remember it. Um, uh, I do same, remember when I was here. eight being hyped for a movie where there were no parents and no counselors and no rules, right. obviously. It was a great you know, pitch. very exciting. And um, I think it's Jessica
1: yeah. Alba's first movie. So it had it all is, the it makings is. of a, a classic. Young right, Right. But I'm just saying, yes, he kept working. He stayed above the title. I feel like my favorite Martian is kind of the end of that run. Uh, yes. I, I feel like he's been unfairly slept on for the last 20 years. I feel like I've talked about this before. It feels like he's still got his fastball and he hasn't been given a proper role in a while. But that run mm. is pretty incredible in terms of like Doomfester, Reverend Jim, Doc Brown. Arguably all four of those performances became iconic. And they're very yeah. different. And they're very sort of like chameleon performances. Although he obviously had his like defining attributes, you know, his a uh, high wire his, sort of energy. Right. His
2: his his energy. Right. Yes. The specific energy. Right. Yes. But, crazy but, eyes, I suppose you would define it as. He has crazy but that's
1: eyes. Why, like Judge Doom is very laconic, wearing sunglasses. I mean we'll get to that. We'll do Anti an He has Crazy episode.
2: eyes though. Okay. But,
1: but they save it.
2: I know. I know. Uh yeah, we'll get to that. We're here to talk about Back to the Future, but first Griffin. Uh, Broad consensus is formed around the idea that you should introduce the
1: podcast It's accepted Oh, so it's accepted, it's accepted Yeah, exactly, right, right This is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David I'm Griffin I'm David And that's the power of love And (laughs) Of course It's a podcast about filmographies Directors who have massive success early on in their career Say their fourth movie ever and are sure. given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce. Baby, right? Say and, the next thirty-five years of their career, right? Right. I mean, this is we we've talked about this. Uh, this is an example. Uh, we were saying this in the *Romancing the Stone* episode of a, a clear so big the checkbook will never be taken away from him. I think it's compounded by Roger Rabbit being kind of equally big, and then the sequels, yeah. by and large, yes. working. Like that run
2: experience, yes. The the run is crazy, yes. Yes. Um, And then that's why he gets to make movies forever because they're a lot of these movies plus Gump are pitches that would sound ludicrous in the room. And so, when when Zemeckis comes to you and he's like, Yeah, you know, it's this guy and he makes models and he's a foot fetishist and action figures represent his emotions, people are like, Well, Look, it's been a while, but you did make Back to the Future, right. right? So, sure, here's a
1: hundred million dollars. It's also one of those cost. movies where it was less costs than two hundred dollars. It was two hundred <laughs> even. Um, I think it was about it's, forty. Yeah, I think it was about forty million yeah, thousand something like uh, that billion. Um, It's one of those movies, too, where it's like, this is not an accident. There is no dumb luck at play, which is the other reason I think people keep on giving him the check. It's like, this is such a tight movie. It is so deliberate. It is so well constructed. This isn't a guy who stumbled into something backwards.
2: Can I say something that is pushing back on that, but only slightly? I don't think this is a tight movie until 30 minutes in. Is that fair for me to say? I don't, I wouldn't, this is obviously a movie that feels perfectly constructed when it comes together at the end. It's just that immense Hollywood satisfaction of like, oh, this was all, you know, working this way for a reason. I think this is a slow start, which is fine. It's
1: a fine to have it be a slow start. It's not a complaint. I, I think the ultimate magic trick of this movie are, are. Wait, we haven't said the miniseries, the films are on Robert it's called Podcast yeah. Away, and today Podcast we're talking away. about right. a little movie called Back to the Future. This happens, I wouldn't even say once a miniseries, I would say it happens maybe once or twice a year period, where we cover a movie that is so big, it's kind of daunting to actually record the episode on it.
2: Yeah, uh, I would say, with all kindness to these masterful movies, they are actually usually not our best episodes, because, right, how do you even... Talk about a movie everyone's talked about, but you it's know, tough. It, it's it's a, it's a great one because we're we're gonna mostly say that it's very good and very successful.
1: Oh, well, I got a lot of stuff to say. I've been doing research I for I weeks, know, months. I You've been doing
2: research. Yeah, Griffin's been all in on Back to the Future, even though we did episodes on Titanic, The Matrix. What are some other big ones we've done, Griffin? Uh, that are I on mean, this uh, kind of level? Fury
1: Road. I have put in that etalon, but Road. because it's so much more recent, it's easier to tackle. Uh, Under Siege, Dark Territory Under Siege, Dark Territory territory, Basically every
2: Christopher Nolan movie Right, um, Dark Knight I put in that territory If we're talking top,
1: top tier Dark Knight I put in that territory Robocop I put in that territory Yes Um, Um,
2: Silence of the Lambs Silence of the Lambs Maybe the Incredibles, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's probably I, not even quite there. Uh, maybe like Tim Burton's Batman, right? You know, right, right,
1: right. You yeah, know? with Tim Burton, there's like the couple there that are that are up there. But it, it yeah. is, yeah. Yeah. it it's is that thing of like this. movies that were blockbusters, critically adored and have aged only better and have so thoroughly have, have seeped into the popular in culture. The culture. Right. But just like touch everything of our modern world. Like we very much live in a post back to the future America in the way that 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 I think applies to all the other movies we just listed. Um, But what was the thing I was about to say? Oh, I think David Rees, the great David Rees, creator of Dicktown, which everyone should watch on Hulu, co-creator of Dicktown with John Hodgman, our other dear friend. Promoting Dicktown. Dicktown's a good show. Everyone watch Dicktown. It is a great show. It's so fucking funny, and it's on Hulu. You can just watch it. And I'm in an episode.
2: You are in an episode. Pretty cool. Um, have you seen? Have you watched my episode yet? I haven't. So that even I haven't gotten to it yet. So that wow. shows how much I like this show. I haven't yeah. even gotten to the Griffin episode yet, and I love it. And
1: and already it's hot. Yeah. No, I I kind of torpedo the show. But uh, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Right. Right it's been going uh, great until David Rees said on our podcast, a thing that we've gone back to a lot that all great movies are either, uh, puzzles or dreams, right? Mm-hmm. It's our spirited away episode. If you want to hear that. Right. And the addendum I'd like to put on that, it's not, it's not, a, uh, uh, I'm not refuting that. I I'm adding a sort of like layer onto it, which is, I think a lot of the best puzzle movies are constructed like magic tricks, right?
2: Uh, yeah, Yes, yeah. so you're talking about this kind of movie where there's a... Jeez, well, what's the prestige? You know, write the... Uh, right. Give me the three stages of the prestige because I forgot look, them, but, I, right? Like, David, you know, it's that. the exact
1: same thing. I want to do the prestige right. structure and I forgot to look it up and I'm not going to remember it. But I feel like the thing this movie does that a lot of good puzzle movies do is they solve the puzzle right in front of you and make you not pay attention to the fact that they're doing that.
2: The, the, the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. That's, that's what sure. it is. I had to Google it because it was driving me crazy, but that's exactly it, yes. Right. Um, right, yes. No, of course not every puzzle movie is a mystery movie with a secret inside that you need to like think about. Like, obviously, maybe that's sort of the appeal of a Christopher Nolan movie or whatever, but like, you know, no, of course I feel like if we're doing broad puzzles or dreams, Mm -hmm. puzzle movies are what you're talking about. These very elaborately satisfying machines that are beautifully constructed and come together really well.
1: But this is that territory of we're going to do the puzzle for you. Like, we're not going to make you solve the puzzle by and large, but we're going to, we're going to somehow distract you from, the fact that we're doing a puzzle, we're going to get your eye off the ball in that sort of prestige way of like um, uh, pay attention to the wrong thing, you know? Yes. Uh, and it might be with great characters that you enjoy right. spending time with. So that's what I was going to say. It, uh, Doc Brown appears on screen 20 minutes into this movie. It takes 20 minutes. And then there's Mm. essentially 10 minutes between when Doc Brown appears and when Marty goes through time, right? Yeah. That's the first half hour of this film that is just a hair under two hours. I think the genius of this movie and the thing that just shows how fucking sharp Gale and Zemeckis were at this point is that first 20 minutes are pretty leisurely paced. I'd say the next Mm -hmm. 10 minutes when Doc Brown enters, you have the DeLorean, you have... The terrorists, all that sort of stuff. It's like clearly throttling into a new gear. But at that point, you don't really know what the movie is, right? If you're pretending you're watching it going in blind, I'm trying to remember how I watched it for the first time. And then the 30-minute mark is really where the movie starts to like reveal itself. I Correct. think what is... so impressive about this movie is you accept the first 20 minutes, which don't feel on their face like they're tight because they just feel like you're watching any eighties teen movie. It's characterization. It's a cool guy. It's good songs. He's in the band. His parents
2: are kind of annoying. His siblings are, you know, these sort of silly characters
1: to have his weekend with Jennifer
2: best. His best friend is of course, an aged scientist, you know, like, right, you know, it's all, it's mostly normal stuff.
1: Um, agree with you on this. The brilliance of the movie is that every single thing that happens in those first 20 minutes is invisible setup for something that comes back into play,
2: right? That would, that's why, of course, it's not like I'm like, huh, back to the future could tighten it up a little bit. Um, you're totally right. I more just wonder, like, if I plop a 10 year old in front of this movie now, are they kind of like, and I'm not trying to rant about the young people and sure. how they're all, you know, whatever, have no attention span. But like, are they kind of just nonplussed by this very kind of like sort of like you're saying, like apart from him being friends with Doc Brown, which is is wild, mm-hmm. everything else is very cookie cutter. It's like hey, he's in school, uh, his parents are hassling him, they're boring. You know what I mean? Like the stakes seem pretty low. Well, Apart from that his parents suck. Those are the stakes, I guess.
1: Right. I'd offer two rebuttals to that. One, I think I saw this right about at 10. So yeah, obviously, the, you know, you're not been, like these youths I'm a movie nerd and TikToks. there's been 21 years since then. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, do you know right? about these TikToks that they're, God, the teens and their but, TikToks. But here are the two actual rebuttals I would offer. One, Marty McFly is super fucking cool and he's very much a 10-year-old's conception of what you want to be as a teenager. I
2: mean, I, I do agree with that. He's really cool. Ben, please weigh in also. He has a skateboard. He has a yeah, cool orange Yeah, he has a skateboard.
3: Jacket. He has an awesome vest. He just, like, also has, like... It's, like, high
2: tops and jeans and plays a right, guitar. But, it,
3: but also his attitude where it's, like, he's not totally, like, a bad guy, but he's also not, like, uptight at all. Thank like, you. that always resonated with me. They they hit such a sweet spot.
2: Yeah, he's like that high school guy where everyone would be friends with him. Maybe he's not in any particular social group, but it's like, yeah, Marty, he's cool.
3: But he would also still smoke a cig in the boys' bathroom.
1: Well, now you're projecting. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think that's that's the line they hit. I mean, obviously, we'll we'll talk about the coup of Fox in this movie, which is like the key to everything. But I think even as the character is written... The fact that he's not prom king cool and the fact that he does seem to exist in his own sphere. But also I've been like trying to watch all of The Simpsons. And the thing that I've been struck by, especially rewatching the early seasons, is I think they're so smart about not making Bart too high status in a way that is similar to Marty, where it's like. Neither of them, although they're popular and they're well-liked and they have skateboards and they're objectively cool to a child, uh, they both, right. like, deal with bullies. They both have frustrations. They're not, like, everything doesn't roll off their backs. And in that way, I think the pure charisma of the first 20 minutes combined with, like, the coolness of the skateboarding, the music, all that sort of stuff.
3: I mean, he hangs on the back of a dang car and gets right. around. I, that's, like, I yeah, mean. I mean,
1: obvious, obviously that is cool. That I think that's so cool to that's kids super cool
2: it's, and then I think you get to shit cool still
1: I think you get to shit like him being frustrated with his dad, the principal like telling him he's never going to amount to some uh, anything yes, I yes, think yes, that's yes. stuff that still you plop any eight year old in front of it and they don't understand why they suddenly feel such a connection to that guy
2: I think you're right, i do it is. It's broad, especially like the principal, where you're like, now you're like, that's so funny that the principal just berates him in the hallway for like nothing. what he's late? Okay, the principal's yeah. like, you know what? You write it off. You are you ain't. That's it. You're not gonna do fucking anything for the rest of your life.
1: But it's this other thing. I mean, Gail and Zemeckis talk about this so much, but Marty is such a reactive character. Like he makes yeah. active choices and he pushes the story forward but the crux of the movie is doc brown figuring out time travel and getting his parents together as a couple he's helping to facilitate both of those things but the big payoffs you're looking for in the movie aren't really things to do with him as directly you know obviously he'll disappear from the photo if this doesn't get solved he needs to help both of these people get to their end points but they're the ones who have the big ecstatic wins in the movie
2: Yes, his you're right. He is or whatever. Time is moving through him in a way like he is not like the stakes are 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 somewhat passive in a way that would seem odd to whatever a Hollywood pitch meeting maybe, right? Where it's like, "Well, why why do I care right. about Marty?" Like, what? Like his mom wants to kiss him, like that's that's all. That's like, you know, like, what does he want? What does Marty want? Like, and it's kind of like, apart from to not be,
1: you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm just repeating what you're saying. No, there's so much stuff about the construction of the screenplay that sort of defies logic and in many ways goes Mm. against how screenplays are taught. I feel like it's so often so binary when you get into like save the cat shit and like the rules of stuff. And Gail and Zemeckis very much had this process where they like wrote shit on note cards and they went like, what's the overall theme of this movie? Like, what is the number one thing we're trying to say? Circle that a thousand times. Make sure everything helps feed into that. Right. But then they would just go like, what are things that would be cool to happen in this movie? And they just would come up with things they would like to see in a film in this sort of like, why not make every scene as good as it could be principle? But then what yes. they would do is they do the legwork. So they go, okay, if we like the idea, it would be funny if Marty is the one who creates rock and roll. Potentially a little bit racist, but also funny. I mean, sure, right. We'll we'll discuss that choice later. We'll discuss it at the time, very let's, cool, right. Or yeah, whatever. let's put that note card on the board, but now we have a commitment to ourselves to seed that throughout the entire film. And so I feel like they're very practical in how they plot things because they they come up with the exciting things they would like to earn by the end of the movie and then they really work to make sure those things have been laid out properly and it's a better way in in many senses of writing a sort of like commercial populist film than i think the linear a to b that a lot of people do
2: that's very interesting It's also the only way to explain a movie where the core concept and again, like, guys, go look, we're talking about a movie that's really famous. Go listen to the Mulaney bit about Back to the Future. Obviously, every everyone has had their sport with Back to the Future. But the core concept of Back to the Future is like, what if you went back in time and learned that your mom was horny? Like, that is the thing that Zemeckis hits on when they him and Bob Gale are like, right. They're like, what, home in Missouri, home in St. Louis looking so at their old yeah. yearbooks and they're like, ah, oh, you know, like, oh, what if, and, and Zemeckis is like, like, what if your mom was like, oh, I never kissed anyone in high school and she was lying. And you found that out by going back in time. Now, I think that's a brilliant idea for a movie to be Absolutely. clear. It's just a strange one for
1: a blockbuster. Yes. That's all. Yes. That, that's, that's the fascinating thing about this movie. And it falls into the same category for me as like big which I feel like I've talked about, I rewatched a year or so ago. A a similarly Oedipal 80s movie about American horniness. Yes, go ahead. And it's like, everyone's done stand-up routines about it. Everyone's done the memes about it. Right, right. right. If you explain the events of that movie to someone, it sounds demented. That person should be put in jail. Penny Marshall should be court-martialed. But the magic trick of that movie is, it is so intelligently written, is directed with such wit, the performances are so on point that the movie, much like a magic trick, does a good job of only making sure you only focus on the things it wants you to focus on at any yes. given point in time. Certainly. It does not want you to think too hard
3: Right, about it, And things. it is
1: right. very easy for like Mulaney to do an excellent stand up bit on how fucked of up course. the premise of Back to the Future is. The thing that's incredible about Back to the Future is that's not subtextual. That is the premise of the movie. And while you're watching it, you're not processing how fucked up it is. <laughs> Certainly not when I was a kid.
2: Like now I watch this movie and I'm like, oh, right. This is a movie like Zemeckis is like making a movie for Reaganites being like the 50s were seedy. America's always been yes. seedy. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not like we we didn't just invent sex 20 years ago. Like th- all of this was going on in your nice picture, perfect cookie cookie cutter, right. like leave it to beaver land. And like if you went back in time, that's what you'd be confronted with. And I love that. But when I'm a kid, I'm definitely more just like, oh, no, Marty's like got to get the timeline back in order. I don't know. Like when you're a kid, you're very you're very into that whole Like sort of balancing act of like, well, this needs to (laughs) happen for this needs, you know, right? Like you're you're just very invested in that. What some would call the rules. I sure love the rules. This was not a pivotal movie for me as a kid. I saw it as a kid Mm. multiple times and I liked it, but it's not like a movie I owned and watched over and over and over again. Like whatever, some of these big things. Like i i i am I am positive on this movie and always have it. I just feel like it, it's a, maybe more foundational for some people. I don't know. Was it for I you? Mean, I don't
1: know. Absolutely, this is humongous sure. for me. This is like okay. one of my favorite franchises, and this is certainly one of the movies that felt like an explosion for me when I finally watched it. Hmm. I, Why I was that? I don't remember what finally got me to watch it. But I feel like like a lot of movies of this era, of the 80s and 90s in particular, my exposure to it was all the sort of ancillary stuff first. So I knew the basic iconography. I knew it's a skateboarding kid and a mad scientist. I probably had watched many episodes of the animated series before I saw the movie. And Mm. so I was just like, I don't know, it's some time travel thing. Like the animated series is
2: very much... They have time Uh, travel adventures. They go back and see dinosaurs or whatever. I've seen that show. I don't remember it at all, but, you know, I remember. It's fun. I
1: like it. it. I've been rewatching it, but it's like every episode. I'm trying (laughs) to be thorough,
2: David. Of course. Yes. Very thorough.
1: And I got the box set.
2: This is, yes, this is, I'm being thorough. That's what I'm doing here. You got the
1: box set for the animated show? Well, they're about to come out with the the 4K box set, uh, which has a lot of new added stuff. But I have the 2010 box set, which I think was the – or the 2015 box set was the 30th anniversary. And it, like, comes in a box that looks like the flux capacitor. And it has all the movies. And it has the animated series. So I've had the animated series for all these years. And I just haven't been watching it. Um, so I was, like, trying to rewatch it because I knew that was – My exposure to this at first, which is very much like, right, as you said, it almost feels more like Wishbone, where it's like every episode is themed around a time period. It's like, where are they going now? And it's so much about Jules and Ver and Doc Brown's kids and the dog. Like, Einstein's a big part of it.
2: I forgot that there's the kids. Yes, of course. Because they were like, kids
1: are like, there's got to be little kids because it's a Saturday morning cartoon. Yes, Right, 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 right. Marty's kind of like their cool uncle. Doc Brown is like their frazzled dad, and every episode is pretty much the kids fuck up and put them in a different time period, and Marty and Doc have to untangle it. And Biff remains this sort of like mythic bully figure, where there is always a Biff equivalent in every timeline. Right, line right. They go every to.
2: every timelines feel like you go to ancient Rome and there's whatever right. an evil Biff senator. Right, there's
1: a, truly like a dinosaur Biff, and like right. right. right, right. Uh, uh, lord biff and all this sort of shit but i feel like that was my exposure and then it was one of those like video store movies for me where you have this like amazing drew struzan poster and as a kid i loved the symmetry of the three boxes all having the same posing but with like one two three people and different outfits and whatever but i think i still just thought like the premise of this movie is these people just travel through time they just go to crazy different time periods I don't remember what finally got me to watch it, but I feel like my dad was like, have you ever seen Back to the Future? You would like that. So I finally rented it, and it just felt like atomic bomb. This movie is so satisfying. It's so exciting. I love these characters. I love the world. I love the sort of subtle mythology that's built into it. And it was like a thing where the next two weekends, I rented Back to the Future 2 and 3, and it felt like... I spent the next week at school waiting to see two, you know, it was like the thing that got me through that next week of school as if it were like a television series It's like, Oh my God, I can't believe I get to watch two more of these and see how they go. Loved both and just have seen them a billion times. Um, I feel like they were one of the first franchises that I got like really, really deeply into and, you know, want to read everything I could about it. But you you right. You go like. Why does this appeal to kids so much? And I do think it is tapping on very elemental things. I mean, if we're going to talk about the origin of this movie, Gail and Zemeckis loved time travel. Nerds. They also loved like futurism, and this movie was essentially like two different strains that ended up meeting. The first strain is that right. And they were like, what we would love to do is make a movie that in reality sounds a lot like what Brad Bird eventually did with Tomorrowland, which is I want to make a movie about the way the future was predicted in the world's fairs of the 40s and why we didn't get that future and what happened to that future. So that was their original idea. And I believe they had a title that was called like Doc Brown's Funtabulous Time Machine or something. Sounds great. They had Doc Brown as a character, which makes sense because that's the only way you end up with Doc Brown in this movie is they already got into the idea of like this like manic, electric, mad scientist, you know, sort of on the verge of mania. Um, so they have that and they never come up with an actual story for that movie. They know they like time travel. They've talked about their theories of time travel and how they would use time travel in a story. They have the, the stem of this Doc Brown character and they have the idea of dealing with alternate you know, futures we didn't get and things like that. But they never come up with a narrative or an emotional hook for that movie. So that's put on a shelf. Then they do used cars. Uh, and after they finish filming used cars, as you said, Bob Gale goes home to visit his parents, goes to the attic, finds his dad's yearbook. And he sees that his dad was the class president. And Gail, although I don't think he was as cool as Marty McFly, was very much like an anti-authority dude in high school. And he said that he started a group in high school to eliminate student government. (laughs) Like his entire life was he was like this low-scale high school political radical who thought student government should be abolished.
2: I mean, and also it should be noted – Gale grew up in the 60s not the 50s like this movie's set in the 50s because it makes sense for it they're, to be set in the 50s like Marty's parents yes. would have right but like but Gale was born in the 50s like so like it makes more sense he, you know by the 60s an anti-establishment teen would be a little more yep. you know like yeah right.
1: Gale and Zemeckis are ultimate boomers they're born in the 50s but they come of yep. age in the 60s yep. but I do think that makes them realize the fulcrum point of and it's the reason why this movie can never be remade, why you cannot transpose it onto a modern day uh, setting, uh, because it's the fulcrum point of how much American culture changes in the 60s and the 70s, that the 80s are almost unrecognizable to how the 50s looked, And from there on out, the changes tend to be a little more surfacy, but there's a real cultural shift there. Which you also tie to the fact that the 50s are like the birth of the American teenager, you know, of like youth culture. Yes, of, the of course. Teen consumer.
2: You're your, your rock around the clock type, you know, right, blackboard jungle 50s kid.
1: Right. So it's just like the, the times match up so perfectly. It will never be that sort of meaningful again. But you go, here are two guys born in the early 50s. So they're small children. Uh, Or they're born in the mid-50s or whatever. But, like, they come of age in the 60s. They know their parents were coming of age roughly in the 40s or 50s. Like, they have this understanding of that. And Gail's looking at this yearbook, and he has the breakthrough notion, which is, if I was in high school the same time as my father, would I even be friends with him? So that's the idea he takes back to Zemeckis. The, The mom stuff comes in a little bit later. I believe the mom stuff is what Zemeckis brings to it. That is Zemeckis' concept. They start boiling on that. And he said, right, what if your mom turned out to, you know, after preaching all these sort of values to you?
2: You went back in time and your mom was not the goody two-shoes she claimed she was. They take right. those two ideas, bring them to Columbia, and Columbia's like, write a script. Like, you know, like, obviously it's not like you have a go picture, but like, whatever, yeah. They they make a deal.
1: Well, they merge it with the time travel thing because when they have that idea, they yeah. go, how do you get to someone being the same age as their parents? And they said, we don't want to do that thing where they conk their head and they wake up and they're in the 50s. We don't oh, want it to all be a dream. Sure, They wanted it to be like sci-fi. Right, right. Right. Because I also feel like that was somewhat of a radical idea. You have a lot of movies like Peggy Sue Got Married, which I know comes out after this. classic, But but things like that with different time periods. and Excuse me. Different realities and all that sort of stuff.
2: Now – you may know this. I'm sure you know this better than I, but wasn't the original idea of the, the time travel a fridge in the Nevada yes. like atomic site and yes. that must be where it, why that's being used in Crystal Skull, right? Like that, It's, yes. it's David, too weird
1: for that to be parallel, right? David, this is a RoboCop mm. episode. There's a reason we don't have a guest. We're getting to all of this, but yes, 100%. Gale says that that is 100% from their draft and I'm inclined to right. believe him. Spielberg was obviously a producer on this. Uh, you can see on the, uh, the Blu-rays, at least the most recent set I have. I don't know if the newer set will have it as well. They have the storyboarded sequence of the test site, and it is so similar. It is so similar. I absolutely believe it's, it, that, that Spielberg that. whole sequence that. Yeah.
2: in Crystal Skull is so back to the future because it's mocking yes. the 50s and all that. Yeah, yes. so it
1: makes sense. The nuclear family, but, if you will. I will get to that in a moment. Um, I do think the idea that it was, oh, semi-hard sci-fi is how we execute this concept, which is on its face kind of a fable, right? It's this fable of the thing that none of us ever get to do, be the same age as our parents. To merge that with... Sci-fi and and not sort of silly space opera sci-fi but actual like notions of how the space time continuum works even if you know uh, theorists dispute it's, the science it's very
2: broad yeah yeah
1: but but they're building their own reality of how it could work here it's not just something they're sort of like it's a hot tub right it's it's close to a hot dog, but yes. OK,
2: I mean, flux capacitor, you know, like they have their language for it, but it doesn't I know what you're
1: saying. It's not him. It's not a dream. It's not an imaginary story or what. you know, and that it's so much about the way the past impacts the future and the effects of those two timelines and all that yes. sort of stuff, the cause and effect even though a lot of uh, theorists uh, don't think that is how things would actually work and that it's maybe closer to the end game theory. It is telling that end game has to go out of its way to say this isn't back to the future because back to the future has become sort of the definitive way that people think about the sound of thunder esque cause and effect of time travel. Right? Yeah.
0: hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So they merge those two two ideas. They have Doc Brown in the back pocket and that's how you end up with a movie in which The coolest skateboarding, rock and roll playing dude in high school is best friends with a mad old scientist who burned down his family mansion for insurance money. Doesn't make any sense. And the movie
2: doesn't even try to explain it. Do you know what their justification is? What's their justification?
1: He has the big amp.
2: He has the what?
1: The big amp. He's got a big amp, which oh, yeah, Marty right. wants to use to play guitar real loud.
2: I, you know, I will say I was watching this with Forky, who had never seen this movie. What? Oh, wow. It's not surprising. You you know her. Hey, hey um, David? I mean David?
0: Mm-hmm. David?
2: He's a, come on. Forky, as we know, is an animate f- spork created only a few years ago. So, of course, Forky hadn't seen that. that Back isn't to the Future, what I was gonna, and I'm leaning into the bit.
1: That isn't what I was going to correct.
2: What were you going to correct?
1: I wasn't going to correct anything. I was just going to say, you're telling me that you showed Forky Back to the Future for the first time last night? It
2: wasn't last night, but very recently, yes.
1: Now that's the
2: power of love. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, and I will say now that that's Forky...
1: the power of love.
2: I kind of was sort of doing the thing where like I'm sort of trying to get it. I was like, look, I know it's it's silly. Like he's friends with a mad scientist who's old. Like yeah. I know it's silly. And she was like, yeah, but he hates his dad. Like isn't yes. Doc Brown just like his? You know, it's like a dad figure. He's in search of dad figures. And I was like, you're right. I mean, that's that's his, not, and again, the movie doesn't make really a lot of effort to. Yeah vocalize that but yes like that's a very easy way to just sort of see that like yeah his marty's dad is the dangest ass fucking freak that there is (laughs) and marty can barely stand (laughs) to look at him so yeah like doc brown you know is sort of this exciting and weird and sort of enter you know energetic figure and like that's more fun for marty to be around
1: I think there's another factor, too, which is it's what we're talking about, the precision in which Marty is characterized as much as it doesn't feel like it's a big choice, that he is not the prom king, that we don't see him hanging out with a lot of friends, that he very much is an individualist. And you have to imagine that as much as it's an odd pairing, Marty would have more respect for the, like, reclusive, rebel old man scientist who's playing by his own rules in the town and like making his own life, you know, that this yeah. guy is just sort of like, I'm master of my own domain. I do whatever the fuck I want. I build whatever the fuck I want. No one tells me what to do. That that's appealing to Marty as this vague sort of like, um, uh, counter authority figure. Um, but to hear Gail and Zemeckis talk about it, They're like, well, we knew we had to come up with an explanation for why Marty hangs out with Doc Brown. And then we finally hit upon it. It's that he has the biggest guitar amp in town. So that's why Marty goes over there. It is so funny that that that
2: opening that, you know, is the all the machinery and all that that is setting up the amp. What's so funny?
1: They describe it as if like, and then we figured it out. It was perfect. And it's like, no, weirdly, (laughs) the movie works in spite of that. Like, as you're saying, we just came up with two really good explanations for why Marty is friends with Doc, even though on its face it's ridiculous. And they're like, no, 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 it's the amp thing in this way that I want to keep getting back to this. This is one of those movies that's kind of a miracle because even though I do think these guys were very skilled and the people they surrounded themselves with are very skilled, there are so many sliding doors moments you hear about with this film where it almost was disastrous, you know, where they just somehow by by circumstance lucked into the better of two options over and over and over again. Yes. And uh, the production of this movie was very weird for those reasons. It um, was. the The other thing I think we should acknowledge...
2: About the development of this. I'm sure you have a million things you want to acknowledge, but that I'll point out is like at the time, this movie is almost tame for a, a teen movie in a lot of ways, Excellent. not for a family adventure movie, but for a movie about teens because the 80s is when the sexy teen movie becomes like, you know, that when it's invented and Porkies and Rich One High and like, you know, like yeah. movies with sex in them, like explicit sex in them are. Yeah are all, you know, all the rage. So, right? Wasn't Columbia kind of like,
1: eh, this thing's too
2: too tame. Right,
1: yeah. Right. So they, Gale has the breakthrough, brings it to Zemeckis, Zemeckis adds the mom element, they combine it with the time travel stuff, they go and pitch it to Columbia, because their narrative had been, obviously, Spielberg is the one who gets them set up with movies, right? He produces their movies, he directs their 1941 scripts, and those were three strikes in a row. All three of those things had, Bombed, And at this point, it's looking like, why did Spielberg bet the farm on these kids? They're not going anywhere. But with uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, uh, which I believe was Universal, right? They make that. It bombs. But the head of Universal calls up Zemeckis the following day and says, I just want you to know I watched that movie with my grandchildren. You've made a great film. And this might have bombed and it's not getting noticed. That's our fault. It's not your fault you're going to have a big career ahead of you, and I would be honored to keep making films with you. So that gives him the juice to start writing used cars, which then ultimately Universal passes on. So, But the fact that people want to stay in business with him gets the screenplay done, where eventually they then go and set it up at Columbia. And then the same thing happens again. The movie comes out, it bombs, but the head of Columbia calls him up and goes, we mishandled this, this is your our fault, you made a great movie, and this is, there's a bigger thing at play, which is your career at large. And I know you're a good filmmaker, and I want to keep making movies with you. So once again, he feels like he has that support. They have the idea. They go and pitch it to Columbia. They go, great, write it. They write the screenplay. They do a couple drafts. They bring it back. And just as you said, they go, look, this is good. But this absolutely is out of vogue with the time, with the moments. Right. Too tame, not right. adult enough, essentially. Right. Right. Now, I Want to Hold Your Hand is pretty tame. Used Cars is one of only two R-rated movies that Zemeckis has ever made. Yeah, you, Used Cars is kind of dirty in kind of a juvenile way. And pointedly, I feel like the stuff that ages the worst in Used Cars 100%. is the stuff that feels like him trying to play the Porky's game. The scene where they rip the woman's top off in the commercial. Exactly.
2: All, all right. that crap, you're like, this feels forced and kind of just junky, 80s, sexy right.
1: comedy stuff. Yeah. But you read the reviews for used cars at the time and the people who are critical of it are like, this movie is way too dark. It's way too anarchic. Like people are like, too far, too far, too far. So I I feel like at this point, Zemeckis and Gail are like, that's not our zone. We can't out Porky's porkies. Let's do what we do. They bring the script in. Head of Columbia goes, look, it's a teen movie and it's not ribald. There's not really a market for this. I'm sorry, we can't really green light this. But the fact that Columbia had... Bet on him allows the script to get to that point, right? It means it came into fruition. So now they go and pitch it right. to every studio multiple times. He says he still has every rejection letter he got, 40 of them. They pitch it to everywhere but Disney first.:
2: Oh okay, I, th- I mean, because I know Disney was like, the mom thing is no good. Wait we-, we can't. Make Disney's a m- the movie final straw, right, right. Right. Disney's right,
1: the yeah. final straw. They pitch it to everyone. Everyone says, "Too tame, too tame, too tame. This isn't how teen movies work. Then someone says to him, you should pitch it to Disney if everyone's saying it's too tame. They went, oh, you're right. They weren't even thinking of that. They go to Disney. Disney goes, are you fucking kidding right. me? Right, he's going to fuck his mom? Get out of here. We're not. This, right. is, Absolutely. this is a family company. Go right. away. Right. Mickey Mouse spits on his shoes, goes, fuck right. you. And Goofy goes, uh uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. yeah, close the door <laughs> behind you on the way out. Right, God. so they're just Jesus. like, why were they allowed to run the company? It's insane. And Don Duck was like. <laughs> uh, so everyone else was like too tame. Disney was like fucking perverted. Nastiest movie we've ever read. And he's just like, I guess this thing can never get made. Sure. While they're in that point when they're just stuck at a standstill is when Spielberg says, I'll produce the screenplay for you. And Zemeckis says, as we talked about in our Mancing Stone episode, I can't let you do that. Right now, I've made three movies, essentially. They all were shepherded by you. All three bombed. People think it's nepotism that I'm just your friend. He, it
2: was just two movies. It, not Romancing the Stone, but yes. Like, Use Cars and I Want to Hold of it I'm like, Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. But right. But he's essentially like, if I make this movie with your yes. name on it and it doesn't work. I'm done. Not only will my reputation be over, but it's so bad for you.
1: And also, I'll never be able to stand on my own two feet. I'll just look like the guy who gets movies made because his buddy is the most successful director in the world. So he does the I'll make the next good script that comes in my mailbox, which eventually ends up being romancing the stone. And he produces it, and it's a big hit. Uh, So then they go back uh, and say, you know, who's the one person who actually believed in this movie from the get-go? Spielberg was the one who always loved it, wanted to make it. What's changed in that period of time is now Spielberg has set up Amblin. At the earlier Mm -hmm. point in time, Amblin did not exist. Back to the Future is the first Amblin movie ever. It is the first Spielberg producing a non-Spielberg film with his own company. So he's got the hot hand. He's built this new thing. Everyone wants to be in Spielberg business. They go back to Universal, who were the people who liked it originally, uh, uh, back, back, back in the day. And they go like, sure, but here are the stipulations. We'll do it with Spielberg. We want to be a summer movie, which means you need to start filming like immediately. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Like I feel like this movie was greenlit nine months before it ended up getting released, if even that much. So it's on expedited fast track. We'll make this film because it's low budget, because you have Spielberg, because Romancing the Stone was a hit, but it has to come out in the summer because that's when it appeals to kids. So, that's where they originally
2: get boned. What? I just, there's one thing I have to tell you that you, that you will like, and you may be read um, that's that universal got the rights from Columbia, but which did still own the movie by mm-hmm. trading them uh, the rights to double indemnity because Columbia was making big trouble. The Cassavetti's movie that Whoa. is so similar to double indemnity that they needed permission, like they needed like double indemnity rights to release it. And so Universal was like, we'll flip you the license if you give us back to the future. And that is just a weird we I, I just feel like you love that kind of Hollywood oh, horse yeah. trading crap. Like, you know, it's the, so, it's so bizarre deal.
1: At some point, yes. I'm going to tell the Chappy Deal on this podcast. The Chappy Deal
2: we have to talk about. Not right now. This, this episode's no, too busy. No, it's going to have to be a more wanna, of a
1: Master Builder-style episode. I want to yes. hype up that someday the Chappy Deal will be told on this podcast. And yep. I'll tell it, and you won't know what story I'm telling until you get to the end. And then you'll go, oh my god, it was the Chappy Deal all along. I'm just Sounds calling great. my shot right now. Sounds great. That's incredible. So, Universal gives them a go picture. A thing I did not realize... Is a really large chunk of this movie was financed through um, uh, uh, what should call it um, product placement? Uh, there are obviously like big notable things where it's like acknowledged in the uh, the, the dialogue or whatever. But Gail has commentary with Neil Canton, the producer, and mm. like. Everything that anyone touches, they're like, that was product placement, that was product placement, that was product placement. Sure, sure, sure. That was the main reason I think Universal agreed to make the movie was because, A, the hook of, oh, it's 50s to 80s means that legacy companies that have existed for over 30 years can have the coolness of existing in two different Time periods, you know, and getting spotlight in that way. And B that Marty's a cool kid, so his sunglasses are sponsorship, you know, and everything he wears is sponsorship, all this sort of stuff. Uh I think ironically the things that are called out in the dialogue are less product placement. Uh it's more like the ExxonMobil station, things like that. Um sure. Pepsi, what have you. Uh but so Pepsi uh, free, Pepsi free. Pepsi free. Pepsi free. So they're a go picture, but it has to be started very soon. Their first choice, no question, is Michael J. Fox. Uh, it's You know you got Spielberg, you have Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, uh, who are now running Amblin for him. Uh, and then Gail and Zemeckis are the main creative team uh, setting this movie up. Uh, when people try to act like Kathleen Kennedy is some rube they picked off the streets to run Star Wars who has no idea what she's doing, I find... Nothing more infuriating. You can dislike what she's done with Star Wars, but her fucking track record for 30 years leading up to that point is not a mistake or an accident. Um, But uh, they're like Michael J. Fox. At this point, Family Ties has been on for like a season or two. It's big, but it hasn't gone supernova. I think Michael J. Fox said that like when they were filming this movie, it was right after... Or right during the season where they got moved after the Cosby show. And that's when they exploded. That's when it became huge.
2: Yes, there was also some issue of Meredith Baxter might have been on maternity leave David, or something. Like They could David, not
1: spare David, him, David, right? David, what? I'm going to outline all of this for you. So, Oh my God. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> they go, we want Michael J. Fox. They go to Gary Goldman, uh, uh, showrunner, creator of Family Ties. Meredith Baxter bernie had Gary, just had Gary twins. Goldberg. Sorry, I'm yep. sorry, <laughs> Gary Goldberg. I'm anti. Eventually, they go to Gary Goldberg. Put
2: Michael J. Fox in Spin City, an incredible show. Yes, go on.
1: Yes, um, I feel like that was more him going to Goldberg and being like, "Can I please do another sitcom? I want to do TV again." Like they developed that together. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they're like, "We know he's on a TV show. Is there any way we could get him?" And Goldberg is like. Meredith baxter Burney just got off of maternity leave. It, it threw off the whole show. I can't lose another cast member. We just got her back. Like the show is finally just back on rails again. Um, Fox had used the maternity leave to do Teen Wolf, which I think was very much him being like, I want to be in a movie. I finally become something of a leading man. I want to be in a movie. And he's like, I kind of immediately regretted it. And when I was on set filming Teen Wolf, I remember the high school we were filming at, some location scouts came by and said they were scouting for a Steven Spielberg movie that Crispin Glover was going to be in. And I had the feeling of, Jesus Christ, I wish I could be in a Steven Spielberg, not in fucking Teen Wolf. Right. Why did I waste my one break on this crap? Right? Um, Because the two things were essentially going to be like back to back. Right. Um, But so he doesn't even know that they offered him Back to the Future because Goldberg just shuts it down. It's like, I'm sorry. They go, they cast, they audition everybody, every young actor. I believe Dep- this new Dep, Cusack. Ben Stiller, mm, this new 4K set that's about to come out, I believe has a lot of those auditions on it for the first time, like the other soon-to-be leading men who auditioned for Marty McFly. The guy they end up casting infamously is eric stoltz and by and large i think they cast him because of his similarity to michael j fox they pretty much say we were so set on michael j fox that when we couldn't get him and we were so frustrated we said who's a guy who kind of looks like michael j fox kind of has I a know. similar voice feels like he might be able to do the michael j fox thing
2: this is the thing because obviously this is the most notorious recasting ever right no competition all time Right, no like, competition. And, yeah. uh, ben, did you know this that Eric Stoltz like played the role of Marty McFly for like weeks? I mean, Five we'll talk weeks. about it.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I feel like
3: this came up maybe off mic, but I, I feel like I remember Alex Ross Perry talking about this. Right, right. Oh and, yes,
1: yes, because he's buddies yeah. with uh, uh, Stultz. Eric Stoltz, who of course has big Ben Hosley energy.
3: Yes, and will eventually play me in my biopic. Totally, It's in, him like and old old ben. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah, <exactly>. course, <laughs> old ben. Yes, of course, old Ben. Um, Stoltz, I,
2: I feel like, you know, so it's sort of like, there's always been the question of like, well, what was he doing wrong? Like, why have we never seen this? Like, what, what was the like big problem? Like, how could they recast him like weeks into a movie that was like, there's always been this mythos of like, he must've been doing something terrible. Yeah. Or crazy or unusual. But I feel like it's what you're saying is like they're just looking at him and being like, I wish he was Michael J. Fox, though. Like they say like, oh, he was giving this very dramatic performance. It wasn't light enough. And like he was very good, but it just wasn't fitting the movie. And I buy that. But I just also feel like they had this thing in their head that you're saying where they're like, they just wanted
1: fucking Michael J. Fox. I think that's definitely like the main thing. And the fact that they cast him, it's like when you start dating someone after a bad breakup, who kind of reminds you of your ex and it doesn't help matters. (laughs) Can you be better off trying to date someone who's dramatically different rather than someone you're attracted to because they kind of have the same face, which is only going to make you long more and more for the person who dumped you. Um, I think that's a big factor. I do also believe that, The difference between Fox and uh, uh, Stoltz is you kind of need the like, you know, Fox was a child star in Canada. He did light entertainment and then he moves to sitcoms and you kind of need someone with sitcom energy in their back pocket to make this movie work. I think Stoltz was more of a serious actor in terms of his development, right? He was more of like a theater dude. Um, A real like drama school dude, I believe. And I, I think it is that like it's the magic trick element of the movie that you need a champagne performer, that you need someone like Michael J. Fox, who's just like this. I understand that this doesn't really make sense, but I also understand what I need to do in order to make this scene work. And perhaps an actor who had. A little bit more of an obsessive tendency towards like I have to find the dramatic truth in this scene would do that at the sake of landing jokes because Zemeckis and Gail always talk about their films, their screenplays don't really have joke jokes. The comedy comes from characters playing situations very, very straight, but you also have to be aware of where the laugh should be. You have to time that properly and put the right emphasis on everything, which I just think is a muscle developed by a dude doing a sitcom in front of a live studio audience over and over and over again. You know? Um, I, I think that's a huge difference. And I think it is just like the, the uh, as you said, that they had Fox in their heads. And I also think there's something about the fact that Fox is so little and his voice is so high pitched. Like, Stoltz Do is five inches taller than him and like two two pitches lower. D- sure? D- are you telling me you built a time machine? Stoltz is as like a, a cool motherfucker. Like He's as a much as Stoltz. too conventionally cool. He doesn't have the, the mild low status thing that Marty always has from being so uh, small. He he had just been in
2: mask, where obviously he has this crazy makeup on, so it's you know that's helping him be like you I'm know, seem like an Is, outsider obviously mask
1: his like his uh make good for back to the future he had already filmed it and really? they had
2: already seen it it was oh, wow. why they cast him it was not yet out it comes out a few months it comes out like March of 85 like you know a few months before back to the future um but like obviously in that he's playing a you know underdog um, and he's good in mask, but I do think of Eric Stoltz more as like Eric Stoltz and kicking and screaming or whatever. Like the kind of sly guy who's kind of like, you know, kind of a little cool and low key and kind of over yes. it. You know what I mean? Like he's great at that. He's so he's fucking good at that. He's got a good,
1: relaxed. He's relaxed. He's right. He's so
2: good at her smell doing that. Like, you know, fucking 40 years later practically.
1: Where whereas like Michael J Fox is working, like he's acting. He's not going for naturalism, but you need that in this movie. I mean, he's he's a very honest reactor, but he understands the pitch of the movie he's in that it needs to be sympathetic with what Christopher Lloyd is doing, you know? And that I do think there's that innate vulnerability that comes from just his size and that also gets back to why kids I think can relate to this movie in like the same way yeah, that movies like Paddington, he's
2: small. yeah. Yeah. Aside
1: from everything else, kids like movies in which someone's a lot smaller than everyone else around them.
2: Yeah, you're you're right. You're right. I I think Michael J. Fox is kind of a brilliant actor. I mean, that's not a I that's agree. not a super controversial take, obviously. No. Um, and I really like him in the movies where he actually was trying to challenge himself, like Casualties of War or what. You know what sure. I mean? Like uh the movies even that like are night
1: big city and things or yeah e-
2: yes or even mars attacks where he's playing a jerk you know like you playing know he's against full his likability right, you know exactly yes. exactly right. um but there it is just also that kind of underrated thing of like it is just fucking hard to be this likable like it's it i mean maybe it comes natural to some people maybe it comes natural to him but like i was not a family ties person because yeah i that's not my... i was a i wasn't really sure. alive for most of that but like to think of that He was like America's hero playing a little fucking young Republican twerp. Like, yeah. And that was like the hottest sitcom of the eighties. And everyone fucking loved Alex Keaton. And like, he won multiple
1: Emmys, right?
2: Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And I grew up watching Spin City and I fucking loved Spin City. Spin City rules, by the way, even yeah, though it probably rules. doesn't. Probably if I watch it now, I'd no, be like, oh, does. yeah, this is like a fun 90s sitcom. But like Goldman,
1: Kind, Fox, it, it, Bostwick, look, it rules. It's, it's There's an no chance It's Insanely loaded
2: work. cast. Insanely. Ruck, you're forgetting Ruck. Ruck. Yeah, I mean, you know, come on. Uh, Jennifer Esposito. <laughs> Esposito. <laughs> Carla Gugino in that that weird first 12 episodes. Um yeah, great 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 show. Um yeah, I don't know. It's just
1: it's hard to sum, sum that up. Yes. No, but th- that's that's a great point. I mean, there's the famous story that when he was testing for family ties, I think the the network had said like, you know, everyone want to hire Michael J. Fox who had been this Canadian child actor done a lot of t- TV. Yeah, right. And uh but like, you know, Canadian TV children's programming and stuff. And uh the executive said he's good, but no one will ever buy a lunchbox with that guy's face on it. Like at that point in time, it was so much the Kirk Cameron model of like, if you're putting a young man on the TV show, he has to become some sort of heartthrob. Hmm. Mm, right, and the, right. th- the fact that Fox became such a heartthrob, I mean, the story is that he like then sent a bunch of the lunchboxes to that guy a year later when he became Tartikoff. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Tartikoff. Right. Exactly. Um, But as you said that the character is so unlikable, so smug, so arrogant, I mean, that's a character who is kind of the opposite of Marty McFly in so many ways. Uh, But it is the fact that like the pure charm is carrying him. I don't think as much as certain people are naturally charming, I think there is clearly a level of craft at play to understand how you play on screen. Here's the story I kept on thinking about while watching this movie last night. It's an anecdote I think about all the time that is such a good distillation of the difference between a movie star and an actor. Not that they're mutually exclusive, but the different powers of each one, right? The different parts of your brain it would take. Ethan Hawke, I believe, was the first choice for Steve Hiller in Independence Day. They send him the script. Hmm. He goes, This is unactable. There is no way to do this. It's impossible. This is trash. A good luck and godspeed to whoever gets the role. A year and a half later, he goes to see Independence Day in theaters. And when Will Smith punches the alien in the face and says, Welcome to Earth, Ethan Hawke cheers. And he right. goes, Well, that's it. Like, that's the thing I could never do. Like, I'm too much in my head as the serious dramaturgical guy that I don't understand that sometimes you just want to do something on screen that looks cool. Like, even if you can't justify why someone would be doing this, it's just going to play. And it's that that preternatural sense that I do think. Smith and Fox have unified from the sense that they were sitcoms performing in front of live studio audiences, understanding the rhythms of the Pavlovian. If I do this, people will explode. The Ethan Hawke thing is interesting because he is such a self-conscious actor in the 90s. Right. And
2: I do feel like. I mean, obviously he never wanted to be what you're talking about, right? Like he clearly just yeah. avoided the the kinds of movies you're talking about kind of in, but he meant to, he wanted to, he didn't want to do those things, Totally. but he yeah. did eventually flip a switch and become a much more natural actor. And I wonder if there was just yeah. some, yeah, he figured it out. Yeah.
1: But I think Stoltz is very similar to Ethan Hawke. I think they come from a similar mindset, you know? Uh, and I think that's the biggest difference and also the fact that they were so similar. So they they start filming the movie uh, with Eric Stoltz. Zemeckis yep. said it was like a thing where he knew fundamentally it wasn't right. right. They probably knew the from arrogance. day one. He said, right. I knew yeah, before we even did. I can, fix it. Did. Right. Right. I can right. fix it. I, I was full of piss and vinegar and I was like, I'm such a good director. I'll be able to make him work. I'll hire the guy closest to Fox and make it work. They film five entire weeks been that's just it's just that's so crazy it's a, uh, to be
2: clear that's a lot of time you know that's yeah. in a, movie. A,
1: a lot of time uh and especially this is a these
2: days movie movies
1: but it's not are a, five weeks it's well certainly a, a, an
2: indie movie right or would not yeah. any, but like a, certainly a small movie would be like a month or six weeks or whatever mm-hmm. but like this is obviously a studio film it's obviously not a cheap film but it's not a it, it, it's sort of a mid-budgeted, to, yeah. right? Like yeah. you know, it was. It's. I think the yes. original budget was more like fourteen million dollars, something. You know, it's yeah. big but not colossal.
1: I think it was ten,
2: but no, it was. It was budgeted at fourteen and ended up
1: costing nineteen. Oh, okay. Jeez. Um, it, it's it's absolutely a thing that doesn't happen without Spielberg. It's it's one of these many like sliding doors things where you're like, if he hadn't finally relented and let Spielberg produce it he would have been fucked at this point because he takes the five weeks of dailies, he cuts them together into a rough assembly, he calls Spielberg in for a screening, and he says, I just feel like we're not getting laughs. Like, it isn't hitting, and without that effervescence, without that champagne performance at the center, you're not going to buy into the movie. I think that's the difference of people spending too much time thinking about, wait, this entire movie is constructed around him not trying to fuck his mom. Michael J. Fox can guide you through that and keep it light. Eric Stoltz, you probably think about the reality of it too much. So he turns to Spielberg and goes, what do you think? And Spielberg goes, you're absolutely right. And he goes to Universal and he's the one guy who has the clout to be able to convince them we have to start over. They essentially have to throw away five weeks of filming there is still a lot of uh, coverage from other actors in the movie that I believe is them playing off of Eric yes, Stoltz.
2: his back is in the film at least a little bit or right. whatever.
1: It, it's yeah. another reason why it's it just bananas that this movie works and that it, it works and harmonizes so well. They try to keep whatever they can. but uh, And you look and it's like Stoltz has dark hair, like jet black hair, even though he's a redhead. He's got a totally different wardrobe. In the footage that's come out, we've never heard his line readings, but there's been a lot of footage, like MOS, that they put into documentaries and stuff.
2: Right. There's images, certainly, that you can see and stuff. Right. Yeah. His hair is kind of Tufty in that sort of stultzy way. He's obviously way taller.
1: He doesn't have the life preserver.
2: No, he doesn't have the orange thing. Right. Exactly. Um, And he's more, not that this is crucial, but he's like Lloyd's height, practically. Right. Uh, uh, where is Lloyd Harden right. yes Melora Harden was gonna play his girlfriend and they kicked her off because she was too tall was, to cast, was cast Fox's girlfriend, yes. Stoltz
1: who yep. later becomes Jan Levinson Gould on the office if you want to talk about how yep. long careers are this was supposed to be like her breakout she never films a day because they were doing yep. the 50 stuff first and they have to call her up and go actually you're not hired for this movie because you're five inches taller than Michael J Fox um, right. The other wild thing there is like Claudia Black, who ends up playing Jennifer but doesn't do the sequels, was their original casting choice. I'm sorry. She becomes Claudia Black later through marriage. Um, Mm. They they cast her originally. She had done a pilot that they were saying wasn't going to get picked up. They cast her for the movie. Then the network changes their mind and goes, actually, we are picking it up. So then she has to drop out. So then they hire Malora... uh, 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 Why am I getting her name? Not Melora Waters. Malora Harden. Uh, They start filming the movie. They do five weeks. Then they reset. And by the time they go back to Claudia Black, that TV show had already been canceled and she gets it back again. Like, the lining up of all this shit is just wild. But um, they go back to Goldberg and they go, is there any way we can get Fox? And Goldberg says, look... The show's up and running again. It's fine. I'll give him the script. If he likes it, I will give it my blessing. But the show has to be in first position. Your schedule has to defer to my show at all times. So he gives the script to Michael J. Fox. He goes, look, I'm sorry. I didn't send this to you four months ago. They wanted you. I blocked it. Read it. Fox reads it. He goes back to Goldberg. He says, this is the best thing I've ever read. You have to let me do this. Fine. So Michael J. Fox's schedule while filming this movie was he would work on family ties from like six or 7 a.m until like 5 p.m. Then they had a truck with a mattress in the back of it. He would nap while they would drive him over to Universal and he would film starting at like 6 p.m until like three or four in the morning, sleep one hour, get take a shower, go back to family ties. He would do that mm-hmm. five days a week. And then Saturday was the one day where they could film exterior daylight scenes. Cause it was the only time they had him during daylight hours. Yeah. He I says think it kind of fucked him up. Yeah. He, he says it, he by and large doesn't remember most of making this movie. It was all muscles, like all instincts, you know, he does seem wired and kind
2: of out of it in this movie, but that's just fine like that just makes sense for the character
1: so it's okay i can barely act if i have had less than seven and a half hours of sleep i don't know how he did this i know he's just innately a very gifted actor that he had the sitcom training that really just i think makes you like a fucking machine with this sort of stuff and that he was running off like the energy you know the perpetual motion of it but it is Uh, astonishing and to think that like most of these actors having already shot five weeks of this movie are now going back and having to reshoot scenes with another actor now at three o'clock in the morning It, it the movie shouldn't work the way it does and there are all these other little changes of just like as you said it was supposed to be the thing that powers the flux capacitor isn't, uh, you know, the bolt of lightning. It's It needs radiation. So they have to go to a nuclear testing site, which they end up realizing they can't afford to do. So they come up with the new ending that all has to take place around the Times Square with the lightning, which is so much better. It's so much better to have it so contained within a physical space where you understand the rules so clearly, where, where the game board is so visible. Um, you know, the... It was originally supposed to be a uh, a fridge, as you said, that he traveled inside. You know, it was like the, the time travel device was like a thing that could be carried. He brought himself inside of a fridge because that had the lining to prevent him from getting the radiation. And Universal said, you can't do this because then kids are going to go hide inside fridges and die and suffocate <laughs> to death. Like yeah, all these fair. bad first ideas they had that were kicked out of them pragmatically but it just speaks to like they had to fight for everything in the screenplay. So the things they doubled down on, they really knew were correct. And the things they sacrificed, they ended up coming up with better solutions for. But um, okay, you get to the opening of this movie. Let's talk about the movie. Hell this yeah. This wild opening shot where you do yep. so much sort of world building through the news broadcast, through Doc Brown's home. I mean, this really long wonner. That that really sets a mood leading into the introduction of Marty. You have all the clocks. You have the newspaper clippings. Man,
3: I love a rube. Do you guys not love a rube? Come on, a good a good rube. G. Ooh, it's always good. Okay, here here I'm going to say it. I'm sick
2: of rubes. Sick of rubes. I'm 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 going to be anti-rube. Fuck you, David. Listen, listen, listen. Don't tell past and future guests or Ruben that. Oh, I love Rube's. To be clear, Rube's is great. Um, Rube's is great. Love a Rube in the eighties look. This uh, you've got married to the mob. You've got Pee Wee's her Pee Wee's. Pee-wee. You know we've done we we have done multiple Rube Goldberg movies. <laughs> right, some of the
1: best RGMs. Yeah.
2: Mousetrap, the board game. Of course, yeah. We, you know we have to yep. we have to genuflect and give respect. Of course, but
1: you know Let's say rats whatever. off to you, the
2: mousetrap. Exactly. I'm just saying, like they've had their day in the sun. Let's let's leave them in the past.
1: You're, I mean, you're you're dunking on Rube Goldberg machines when all the examples you listed pretty much took place in the 80s. That's it's not like people let's are still trying to put Rube Goldberg's Listen, in front of your eyes. If well, a I don't can know. hit a
3: thing and a marble can go down and then it can like. You know, end up lighting a torch, which then, like, burns a thing and it goes across the room. I mean, and then all of this (laughs) to pour milk into coffee. That's good.
1: David, they Uh, had their place in the sun. It's been over 35 years. There's no no reason for you to be upset. That (laughs) Well, we're not watching YouTube. This is a movie podcast.
2: Griffin, Griffin, (laughs) Griffin. One other thing I want to say about the Rube Goldberg machine. Please. It doesn't work in this movie, which is kind of funny. Or whatever. You know, if it worked...
1: It's so long abandoned that uh, yeah. that it's it's piling up pieces of toast. But even that is deliberate because we're not going to see Doc Brown for twenty minutes. This movie needs to give us some background sense of the looming chaos and disorganization and mania of doc brown before we see him there are all these plot details not plot details but sort of like background details that are seated in there that i feel like you don't even really consciously clock i never really took stock of them until i'd seen the movie like 20 times and saw it on the big screen for the first time but the thing about the fire to the Do- the brown family mansion which is sort of yep. implying maybe doc brown burned his house down on purpose for the insurance money. Is that how he's still surviving? Or is he just such a disaster that he ended up burning it down by accident? Either way, that sets it up. The fact that the machine isn't working properly, the fact that it's piled up and he hasn't been there for that long. You know, the news broadcast with the notification of the uh, the plutonium going missing, the terrorists, all this sort of stuff. You're just like setting up all these things. But because it's a fucking Rube Goldberg machine, you're just accepting it as like this is fun and light. You're not feeling like you're being spoon-fed exposition. And then Marty enters, no, plugs in the guitar, not. plays the one chord, gets blown across the wall and we're in. This is the tone of the movie and that's the power of love, right? Now just immediately he's on the skateboard, he's on the tailpipe, he's got his girlfriend, Marty Skateboard rolls. great.
2: Marty's cool. Yeah. He's he's, he's truant. He wants to be in the band. He's got it's a girlfriend. The power of love. It's Huey cool. Lewis thinks they're
1: just too damn loud. Right. He has a Huey Lewis poster in his room. I know how um, rude of, then of Huey Lewis to Moonlight as the judge of his high school battle of the bands and tell him to go fuck himself. Um and I'm trying to think. I guess there's the confrontation with
2: the principal. And right. you know, after that we meet his parents. His parents are where you're kind of like suddenly like. Intentionally, the air is out of the room a little bit and you're like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. Like, Jesus.
1: Right, because you have this long scene that's the dinner table scene. Uh, First you have where, Biff and then the dinner table scene. Right, right. You have Biff chewing out his dad, but then it, it's everything. The movie's been so fun, so poppy, so bright, and then it's like, this is a bummer. You know, here's yeah. his dad I mean, who is just so oblivious, head in the clouds, and his mom who just has lost any joy in life. Absolutely. Go, go ahead, Ben. Yeah, yeah it's got this coating
3: of the the bad side of town. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I feel like though at the same time I really, I really liked seeing that as a kid of like not sh- showing kind of a like what's it called chaotic.
2: Lions Court or whatever the the the, the you know yes. whatever the housing developments called.
1: They're weird sort of yeah uh, housing community. They're cul de sac. Yeah. I mean, and just like kind of this
3: like mainstream movie that they're able to like not show a perfect family.
1: Yeah. And and these are things that also help Marty, you know, become a relatable character. Yes. Is that his life isn't. Perfect. And as much as if you asked him what his greatest goal in life is, it would just be, I want a bigger car so I can go to the woods and fuck my girlfriend. As an audience member, even if he could verbalize this, you're like, this guy doesn't have it all. As much as he sort of glides through life, you know, seemingly without a care in the world, there's, there's a, a fundamental sadness to his existence. And yes. it's that he's got these two parents who are just, like, miserable and suck, you know? And mm-hmm. both of his parents are sort of, like, lack the courage to admit that they're sad.
3: Yes. And if you live in that kind of environment, you're just putting up with your mother's alcoholism, right? Because that's just the normal. You're putting right. up with your dad being right. a pushover and everyone's okay. unhappy. And you sit at that you, table, and you,
1: you wonder go if you're ahead, stuck. Go. Am I just, yes. like, doomed? Is right. this what Am I comes? Uh, you know,
2: right with with his mom you get it okay she's she's drinking too much now and she has this weird scoldy energy of like a girl shouldn't be pursuing a boy that feels yeah, kind yeah. of like okay what Crispin Glover is doing is not normal no like not. what Leah Thompson is doing I can totally understand what Crispin Glover is doing I'm like just looking left and right I'm like who who what what what's the deal with this guy this guy is the craziest thing I've ever seen I enjoy Crispin Glover I know Me this too. is obviously his One of his most iconic roles, probably his most iconic role, just because the size of the movie. This or the hair sniffer from Charlie's Angels. Exactly. And I like, obviously, and I know enough about the movie that I know that he was kind of driving driving Zemeckis crazy. Absolutely. every choice he's making is just odd. He's just, I mean, he's he's a freak.
1: He's a damn freak. Fox said like, you know, it's interesting you hear about the different acting styles on this movie, right? And it's like Leia Thompson's background was as a dancer. She's very much into precision and technique, you know, and she's like, I really like the challenge of playing two people and two different, you know, one person in two different eras, being able to affect the physicality of it. I love the degree of how technical Zemeckis she's was. in has makeup framing. on. It's right. It's really elaborate. Right. Yeah. Right Fox has the champagne energy, has the you know, the siami timing, you know, the effervescence, all these things I'm saying. Christopher Lloyd is like this really like meticulous sort of go for it uh, but but in some to some degree improvisational. I mean, they talk about he ref- like Christopher Lloyd is a guy who does a 150 percent energy on every take. So when they would do camera rehearsals, he wouldn't do it. Like, he would be like, oh, Marty, uh, what are you doing here? Like, moving at no speed whatsoever. Like, Chris Rock trying out new material. And he was like, I just can't burn energy if it's not a real take. But also, his performance would evolve take over take, so a lot of the great stuff he does is discoveries, and then once he discovers something... He could then repeat it perfectly, but there has to be a natural build to it. It's not there in the first time. He's not doing that level of prep work. He's like chipping away at it. So they would film the rehearsals knowing that it probably would be unusable, but you don't want to have a blocking rehearsal that doesn't really make sense because he's not really doing it, and you also don't want to tie him down to something because he's going to find it later. And then you have Crispin Glover who's just... Gonzo, like Crispin Glover is in that category of like Nicolas Cage, where it's like what I'm doing is like impressionistic. It it doesn't resemble uh, logical human behavior, my thought process behind every decision. I can explain it, but it makes no logical sense. I mean, like Fox said that that was the guy that he sort of envied, that he was such a big Crispin Glover fan that he had worked with Crispin Glover a couple times before done TV movie with him. Glover had been on family ties and amongst their generation of actors, everyone kind of envied Glover. Cause they were like, mm-hmm. man, this guy's just in another he's planet. He's weird. Right. Yeah. He's doing right. his own thing. Yeah. And he just sees the world differently. He has ideas that no one else would ever had. And he said like, there's a scene where I'm trying to convince him to ask out Lorraine. And he grabbed a broom and started like sweeping in front of me, like in the air. And after the take, Zemeckis was like, ah, uh, Crispin, what was uh, that? And he was like, it was my sweep of indignation. <laughs> okay, Crispin. God, I would be like, I already burned firing an actor on this thing. What am I going to do? That was the exact response they gave him. But it was like, we know that the good stuff he's giving us, we couldn't get from someone else who's more Certainly. right-brained. It
2: works in that, like, it's probably boring or less compelling. If uh, Lloyd is just a dweeb, right? Like, you know, and it's also kind of, I mean, sorry, not Lloyd, George, Christopher Lloyd, uh, George McFly. Uh, It's also probably kind of hard to play an adult dweeb, like regular dweeb. Like people don't behave like that as grownups. Like they don't let people walk all over the, like the scene where Biff is walking all over him is sort of is, is, is insane. It's very yes, funny yes. because it's so insane and because Biff is so ludicrous and then it's so funny to see it mirrored. But like the, you're like, what kind of a person? And then you see what Crispin Glover is doing and you're like, yeah, I guess this kind of a person. I guess but that's the is, only kind of a person. But you
3: argue that because it's it's in done in this way that it actually doesn't feel sad? Sure He's not exactly
2: sad Right He's sort of just like In his own world He's so oblivious The whole premise is like Yeah They fell in love Almost by mistake Because she like Would nurse him back to health And it was just kind of like A freak occurrence Right, like, it's, it's And a sad they quickly like, realize right. she quickly realized he's like just in his own world.
1: I, I think that's an incredibly good point, Ben, because it's like without Leia Thompson, giving it the actual weight and gravitas of her sadness, every line reading she has in the 1985 reality is just like the full weight of a woman who regrets every decision she has made that t- led her to this point without that it feels flippant. You know, I don't feel like the stakes are there if you actually want to see them get together beyond, um, uh, you know, Marty not disappearing from the photo. The idea that you want these two people to be together emotionally. I think you need that. But on the other hand, if Glover is as sad as she is, the movie becomes unbearably heavy. You know, it's like, you need that. Jesus. I think also in this Nicholas Cage way of like, He's not representing what actual human behavior looks like. He's representing how it feels. It's like he's playing the way someone perceives their father that they're embarrassed by, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Which also adds to the tension of the movie where when he goes back to 1955 and George is still that fundamentally weird, you're like, this is impossible. This is impossible. He will never make her fall in love with him. You know, aside from him just being a conventional nerd, it's like, this guy is so weird. There's no way to solve this. I think it it lends the movie some real tension. I mean, he's. Have you ever so seen fair. this movie in a, th- a theater, David? Hmm. Probably not. No. They did some re release either for, I think, the 25th or the 35th. Yeah, like a sure, Fathom sure. Events, it played one weekend thing. And I feel like it's been re released in drive ins a lot this summer when the movies died. Um, But I only saw it, like, in theaters then, you know, five or ten years ago. And Mm -hmm. the two things that jumped out to me about how differently it played in a theater were, A, there are so many compositions where uh, he has Christopher Lloyd in the background of a frame doing something incredibly funny that is hard to read on a small screen. Uh, And B, the Glover performance just, like, brings the house down in theaters. Yeah, yeah. Because he's... Right. Because that's that sort of
2: thing of, like, we need to laugh at this just so we feel more comfortable with how right. bizarre this is. Yes.
1: Right. Like, I always just sort of viewed him as the dilemma and Lloyd as the funny character. And then watching in theaters, I was like, wow, he's, like, stealthily maybe the funniest performance in this movie. Everyone's funny, though.
2: I think yeah. Tom Wilson, obviously very funny as Biff. Yeah. Uh, I think he kind of has the buffoonery of that down in a way that a lot of people wouldn't, a lot of people would just be like, I'll just be mean, like combined with a a genuine man. He needs to, yeah, right. He needs to be ludicrously insecure, which he is like, which is just makes it funnier. Um, I think Leah Thompson is so funny in this movie. Like once she's young, Leah, you know, once she's young, Lorraine, who
1: who wins the supporting categories in
2: 1985 for, for, for the Academy Awards.
1: Yeah. The Oscars? Because I just feel like Slam Dunk in my mind I know I've done this thought experiment before Leia Thompson and Christopher Lloyd both should have been nominated
2: Let's see who won obviously this film was only nominated for screenplay and uh, song right. and some technical awards Is this the Best Hiang Supporting Actor year? No Best Supporting Actor is Don Amici and Cocoon uh,
0: Absolutely uh, Christopher that, Lloyd
2: that, should have beaten Don Amici and Cocoon Yeah it, Christopher Lloyd should have beaten all these guys actually kind of a weird year uh, Robert Loja, Eric Roberts, Klaus Maria Brandauer, and William Hickey. Wild, wildfire. Weird fucking year.
1: And weird that Zemeckis was supposed to direct Cocoon.
2: He was, right. Um, and then supporting actress Angelica Houston wins for Prissy's Honor. Great win. Uh, and you've got Oprah Winfrey and Margaret Avery from The Color Purple. You've got Amy Madigan from Twice in a Lifetime. You've got Meg Tilly Agnes of God. You know, the 80s are weird. I, yeah. you know, I, mean, I would kick Leah Thompson in there too for sure, and
1: I would kick Lloyd in there for sure. I, I'm, I'm yeah. with you. The thing that always jumps out to me rewatching it is I, I do feel like Leah Thompson is one of the best performances by a young actor playing an older person I have ever seen. It, it, it she, she is so subtle in the way she ages the character up. You know that it doesn't feel cartoonish, and. Watching this movie for the first time as, like, a 10-year-old, and obviously I was watching it on VHS, the the quality was lower. You know, when you watch it in HD, the makeup is more apparent. I remember thinking, this is is a woman in her 40s, and when you go back to 1955 and I recognize, oh my god, this is the same actress. This is her stripped of makeup. I, I kind of couldn't believe it. Whereas Glover's obviously giving this far cartoonier performance. But he's good, to be clear. To be clear, I support Great. the performance. I
2: just think it's weird that I agree. he did this, if that yes. makes sense.
1: But but it's it's like happy accident that ends up synchronizing, harmonizing with what everyone else is doing perfectly. So you get the scene with the siblings. Everyone's miserable. Marty's the one guy who's sort of seemingly aware of the fact that life could be better. That's kind of his... Uh, handicap is like everyone else is just resigned to being sort of miserable and being under the thumb, um, and all he wants to do is go away to the cabin in the woods for the weekend with Jennifer, with the car, and his mom doesn't want to let him do it. Tisk tisk tisk. But he goes to sleep. He wakes up, phone call in the middle of the night. He forgot his promise to his best friend, reclusive inventor Dr. Emmett Brown. <laughs> of course, he had to be there to film the thing. Skateboards over with his video camera at Twin Pines Mall. That's his end of the bargain. Is that he's the the cinematographer. He's he's the, the of course the, the cameraman for Doc Brown's experiments. And Doc Brown believes that he's finally cracked at the thing he's been working on for thirty years, the flux capacitor. You get this mm-hmm. hero reveal of the car. I mean, yes. it, it's like. It's a calling their own shot thing. Like to some degree you wonder, does the car become iconic because the movie is so adamant about making you accept the car as iconic? But I also just feel like it's another perfect accident that like the movie gains power by how quickly the DeLorean collapsed after the release of this movie. So that this becomes peak DeLorean. And as time goes on, this car just feels like a complete creation of this movie down to like the,
2: the wing doors to be clear, Griffin, the DeLorean had already collapsed. The DeLorean was an antique object when this movie came out. Okay. It collapses by 1982. It, the reason it works in this movie is because that movie car was like a space car. Yes. You know, like when people, and of course that was why it stuck out when it was created, where it was like, look at this thing, nothing looks like it. And then of course people bought it and it cost a ton of money and it was, it didn't work very well. And so like, it didn't like commercially succeed. But when this movie recasts that like fringe object as a futuristic machine, I mean, like the, of course they know
1: it's a DeLorean, but like that's, it's like, great. You found the purpose of this thing. You, you, like who knew it? It looks like a uh, production design for a sci-fi movie about time travel in its natural state and it's stripped down. Yeah.
2: There are only 9,000 DeLoreans in the world That's ever made. Wild, like it was, I not, 8, it was not, it was not like a big thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, you keep buying them. Right. And you know, obviously, yeah.
1: but yes, the, the joke cars. of, I love them. I just live in them. Uh, I have a race car bet, except it's just a literal race car. Um, the uh the joke of you built a time machine out of a DeLorean is right. it's like you built a time machine out of a Zune. It's out of like, a shitty car. Right, right, right. Exactly. A Zune right. is it's a good like call. It's like any fair, you know, failed like big belly flop uh technology. But I just think the more time goes on and the more that kids don't even have that context of knowing that it's a failed car, it just looks like. It's like Back to the Future has been able to fully own the DeLorean as its own proprietary thing in this weird accidental way. And all the kibble they add onto it is so good. It's the right combination of sleekness from the innate car and the sort of like scrappiness of all the add-ons that well, Doc yeah. Brown
3: gives it. It's 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 telling you, it's signaling to the audience that he's a renegade scientist, which I totally. love. I think yes. that that's so cool that he's like doing all of this crazy stuff, but clearly is just like not – Involved with any kind of like academia in any way
1: that he's like dealing with terrorists and stealing plutonium.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, Ben, we know yes. you love the members only jacket, or at least you did for a while. Oh, you of course. One.
3: Yep, yep, yep. Yeah.
2: So th- this is a similar object, in an eighties curiosity that was briefly, you know, cool. The Delorean, the members only. That's I'm on making a connection. That's all.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah.
2: No, everyone, everyone just went over like a brick.
1: Well, yeah, I just popular. feel like uh, members no, only, though. 40% approval rating. Oh, well, well okay. okay. No, sorry. <laughs> what were you going to say? Still win the well, electoral college. Uh, members deployed, only. Unfortunately, the system's broken
3: is uh also it's like one of those things though david where it's like it will permanently be in every vintage clothes store like it's like mm. kind of almost synonymous with like yes it's like the michael jackson thriller of like use record you know sure you know what i'm saying sure. like
2: because they they were so hot for two years they made a zillion yeah. of it. it's it's like how yeah. there's so many copies of killer instinct on the nintendo 64 still
1: floating around there jerry Maguire on vhs yes um, anyway, look, they travel back in time. Let's travel back in time, guys. Can we take a five-second pause for me to pee? I need to pee very badly.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, cool. I'll pee, too.
1: We'll see
3: you listeners in the future. I'm back.
1: I'm back as well to the present. I'm back to the present. Back to the present. Uh, Ben... Is not back yet, despite what Peter Hedges might tell us. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Um, I, David, I'm, I'm just getting back into it. David, sure. Yep, let's David. do it. David, this is not an David. ad read. This is a new point I I'm going to make. Um, yes. Uh, my film career has uh, not been uh, what uh, one would call good. Oh, get out of here. No, I'm not being self-effacing, but, uh, you know, like the, the work I've done that I'm proud of, by and large, is in TV, and as oh, someone...
2: Oh, uh, uh, yeah, I, sure, the movies you've been in less. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. right.
1: Yes, I get, and, I get and, and as someone who loves movies so much and loves the communal experience of movie going, which I miss greatly, um, yes, I get so envious when I hear stories about, like, Legendary test screenings, you know, or like opening weekend audiences. Those instances where a movie plays like a live performance. This is a classic
2: where the studio is like, yeah, Back to the Future. I don't know. Like, I watched, yep. I thought it was okay. They watch it with an audience. The audience is just absolutely through this the roof, and they're the like, story, shit.
1: Oh my God. I'm going right. to tell. The idea right. of being able to, because as a live performer, you don't get to be outside of your head and enjoy the audience enjoying it. You're still working. If you have a good movie and you get to go to the theater opening weekend or sit at the premiere or the test screening and watch a play like Gangbusters, it must just be the most satisfying thing in the world. And they talk about, like, Michael J. Fox was getting bigger and bigger from Family Ties. When they test screened this movie, which they did, like, four weeks after they finished filming, right? They, like, put it together with temp music, with unfinished effects really quickly. The audience knew nothing other than it's the guy from Family Ties and the guy from Taxi, right? It's, like, two sitcom stars who aren't movie stars yet. And they know the title, but what the fuck does Back to the Future mean? It might as well just be gobbledygook, right? They know nothing about the premise. So the first 20 minutes, they're thinking it's just kind of your average teen movie, as you said. When Doc Brown comes in, you know, Gail and Zemeckis say, they could feel the audience going like, what is this? Wait, how does this character figure into this movie? Christopher Lloyd is one of, in this film, I think, if I can throw out a little hyperbole, Perhaps the best exposition giver in the history of cinema. You're right. He's very... That is hyperbolic. But yes, he's incredibly good at the exposition. You are not wrong. And they talked about that was like a big fear for them is like, we have to do so much table setting. How is the audience going to live up to this? And it's like he makes such strong comedic choices that carry over in everything he says. So that he's always entertaining. And even if you feel like you're not absorbing what he's saying to you, you're subconsciously back pocketing it while enjoying the comedy of just like, what's this guy going to do next? The unpredictability keeps you paying attention, which is the magic trick of this performance. Reverend Jim has like a similar sort of like chaos to him, but he's so spacey that like, you know, he's this burnout character. Uh, on on Taxi this guy he's so propulsive that you like want to lean in because you trust that he's going to take you somewhere and Marty McFly is like the reaction character of going like what? what are you talking about? that makes it easy to absorb but you're having all this like him explaining like oh, the I got hit in the head Marty? all this sort of stuff this incredible mm-hmm. thing device he uses over and over across these three movies where because the height difference between Lloyd and Fox is so big, he'll do that thing where he has them in a two shot, but staggered. So one of them is really close to the camera and one of them is really far away. So they roughly look the same height and then he has them switch positions and they keep on walking back and forth, which also lends to this sort of magic trick quality of even though it's not a musical number, the choreography is kind of exciting to watch the timing be that precise. The actors pick up those lines. Um, But you get to this thing where the car comes out The Sylvester score kicks in as opposed to other movies of this era. You don't have this uh, uh, synthesizer score. You don't have what was starting to become the popular score method of the time. And you also don't have a rock and roll score because rock is going to underline the movie as like a key thing. You have this very old fashioned major symphony score, which is giving you this hero theme for a car and then a dog. And Gail talks about like sitting there, test screening. This happens, and the audience is like, "Wait, what is this movie?" They put Einstein in the car, hit the stopwatch. The car zooms, explodes, disappears, flames. Right, and he's like, Marty's doing the whole like, "Ah, you blew up the
2: dog," you know, right? Like the you know, audience
1: that. goes like, "Ugh," right?
2: Because they're the like. Dog. Is-
1: is the premise of this movie they killed a dog? Is that what this movie is going to hinge on now? Why would then, that be the premise of this movie, you dumb I'm audience? I'm telling you, this is the story. that Because the, the audience, if you're watching a movie with no context, you're sitting there going, when's the hook going to come in? When's the hook? When's the hook, right? So they. And also,
3: no one wants to see an animal get hurt. It's
1: That's saving saving the the of course, a it's, universal. Yes, no, one a universal. Yes, no
3: one likes that. Yeah. Right.
1: So the audience like cringes. And then when the dog comes back, he's like, I felt this sudden, like immediate release of tension where it was, okay, wait, it's time travel. So that's what's going on in this movie. The audience starts to get roped in. Then, of course, you have this really, really just well-constructed sequence where the terrorists show up. They get in this big shootout. Doc Brown gets shot down. It's pretty upsetting, which it kind of needs to be because you need to have the fact that Marty witnessed this firsthand be something that haunts him so much that he's willing to disrupt the space time continuum to prevent it.
2: I agree. But that was also the moment where Forky was like, yeah, I definitely haven't seen this movie. because sure. like, I, I would remember him getting shot by terrorists.
1: Totally. Drunk. And then right. it, it, the fact that he does not know he is traveling through time, the fact that it is accidental, that he's just trying to get away. And then you just have that seamless fucking transition. Like, as opposed to something like Bill and Ted shortly after this, where you see them go through the circuits of time, which I enjoy in its own way, the fact that they have this, like, shot from the dashboard of just driving, 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 suddenly you're in a field. Like, the hard cut is, like, Sherlock Jr. stuff, but it's so effective. It's great. He's in the 50s. He's in the barn. They think he's a spaceman from Pluto, right? He's totally disoriented. The fact that they filmed this on the Universal backlot, that they didn't want to film on a backlot, that they wanted to find a real town, but this gave them the control to be able to make the 80s version of the town even dirtier than a real town could be, and the 50s version of the town even shinier than a real town could be. It also makes it, exactly. as I said, such a clear, visible game board. So much of the movie is centered around this one town square, and it helps that you have such a clear mapping of what the two look like, because it's... So manageable in your mind, right?
2: Absolutely. And the, all the little jokes of the mayor, right. you know, and uh, things like that. Like, you know, the the
1: all those little changes. They're Mr. Delightful. Sandman mm-hmm. playing.
2: Spot the different stuff. right? And yeah. as
1: you said, it's like Gale and Zemeckis are to some degree riffing on the way that the 50s are portrayed in this very shiny, idealistic. This is when things were pure light in media at the time. Because this 50s yes. version, they put these warmer gels on the lights You have the softer music playing, like everything feels like, oh, this is perfect. This is Paradise Lost. Look at this like perfect town here. He goes into the diner, right, or the malt shop or whatever. Biff walks in and yells McFly and he and his dad turn around at the same time. So great.
3: That's the moment
1: that Gale says the audience burst into applause, that he could hear the gasp from the audience of, oh, my God, that's what this movie is about. That's so brilliant. It gives me fucking goosebumps to think about being in their shoes, sitting there in the theater at that moment with a cold audience, seeing them all get it and be that excited by what the film was doing. It's just like, could there be any more satisfying feeling in the world of just like, we we nailed it, we nailed it. And then the rest of the movie just fucking pays out like a slot machine. Like they're hooked. They're on the hook and, and they were like, Kathleen Kennedy is like, there were seven spontaneous applause breaks. Spielberg's like, it's still to this day is the single best test screen I've ever seen. At the end of the movie, they rose to their feet. Like to just walk out of that theater and be like, we nailed it. Slam dunk. But, but in particular, that moment, because it is so exquisitely done of the turning around. And then him looking like that shot that's so good where you have the profile of George McFly And then Marty leans into it. It's yes.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's so deeply satisfying. I'm trying to articulate why. Go ahead, Ben.
3: The thought I'm having is like, you could do anything with time travel, right? Story wise. Like the thing you wouldn't necessarily do is go to where you've lived. Right? Like, I feel like the thought is like, you go to see, historical events or whatever, right?
2: You'd do a Bill and Ted. You'd hang out with, you know,
3: Socrates and Beethoven. Right, Right. yeah. And it makes me think of kind of why 3 doesn't work a little bit.
1: Look, I... Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I love 2. I like 3 a lot. They unquestionably are diminishing Returns, although I think 2 is close, just in terms of being one of the better sequels ever made. But 2 and 3 are fundamentally time travel movies. They are about time travel this is a movie that used uses time travel as means to an end which is that moment like it's all just shoe leather to get to that moment at the counter in the malt shop and the fact that the window dressing of the time travel on top of that is so exquisitely well done is what pushes this movie into like you know just like perfect cultural artifact territory but, but you're never going to replicate that juice of, right, we all think about what we would do. How would we go back and kill Hitler to make the future better? How would we go back and meet people or see a time that we've been obsessed with in our minds? No, they hit on something that no one had crystallized before, which is the most profound thing you could do is be the same age as your parents, is be able to witness the things that you've only heard about. And reconcile your perception of them, especially when you're this age where you are living with that fear of everyone's either in high school, I think, wondering, am I going to end up succeeding as much as my parents or am I going to fail as much as my parents? Right. Everyone, I think, either views their parents as like a specter of a future they want to avoid or an unrealistic sort of standard that they have to meet. And the idea of being able to at that threshold of adulthood compared directly is just it's it will never not be resonant.
3: Also, for kids, you don't think about your parents as ever being young. No, it's like a thing. I I don't think that it takes until you get way into your adulthood to actually be like, so wait. Yeah. When my parents met, they were basically like my age
1: and were like me. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's brilliant it is truly a brilliant idea for them to land on and and it's it's it transcends all generations it like you know it will never not be poignant that's true but this is a very specific movie like generationally i feel like yeah once again the story only works with the 50s and the 80s because of that shift there if you think about, if you were to make this movie today, Marty would have to, to go back ni- to 1995. To and it's just yeah. jokes about what music they're listening to, right? Uh, I, I think so, yes. I I mean, like, it now... Becomes Hot Top Time now I mean, it becomes Hot Tub
2: Time Machine. It becomes Hot Tub Time Machine for sure, but it's also like, we would just be like, y- there's so much disaster! <laughs> like, Whereas yeah. in the mm. 80s and 50s, those are both eras of prosperity and American
1: exceptionalism. Right. And it's funny to mock both of them with each other. And even if Galen and Zemeckis' view of, like, that sort of Reagan-era arrogance and the sort of me generation is curdled, there's an analog there, and it also means that, like, it could make you actually long for a different type of American prosperity, because I think their view of what was going on in the 80s was fairly cynical whereas now right you'd be like well i mean the 90s were we any really better i mean we're certainly worse now but it's not like necessarily a time where we're like man i wish we were there you know
2: right but it's also we would just literally be like there's these disasters we have to (laughs) predict, like that we have to warn you about it would just be a
1: bummer now Right, and it would just be like the fucking like eh, Pablo Picasso. I'm telling you, he will never amount to anything like that. Sure, right,
2: right, sort of shit. It becomes Uh, HBO making television
1: shows nonsense. The the smaller TV (laughs) on your phone, you just listen to it. Like, right? It's hot. what's that? I like large ones.
2: Yeah, the bites need to be big. Really, it's more of a swallow is how I describe experiencing these things.
1: Right. You get those jokes with Doc Brown. You get those jokes where it's like, oh, "No, no, who's president. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the, actor, the, Reagan president? the Reagan
2: joke. Right. Right. Yes. Great right. joke. All that stuff. He's a,
1: but he was an actor. Yeah, right. The uh, Marty chasing George out. Feeling the sort of doomed, like, Jesus Christ, the cycle's been going on for so long. Biff is still giving him the business back in Mm -hmm. this time period. Like, my Mm -hmm. dad's just been stuck for 30 years. Um, But then, of course, saving his father, pushing him out of the way, taking the hit from the car. After seeing that his dad's a fucking dang-ass freak sitting
3: in a branch with
1: binoculars, peeping.
3: Yeah, but I that's mean, some 80s but like, comedy shit, though, right?
1: Coming after Ben's nickname.
2: I It's some 50s shit, too, though. I mean, like, that is such a... Like, now, obviously, no one would say peeping Tom anymore as, like, a a thing, like, where it's like, well, he's a peeping Tom, but, like... That, you know, that's okay. like, that's like cutesy dialogue, right? For like, this is yeah. the whole thing about this movie. They were all freaks in the fifties. Yeah. They all yeah. wanted
0: to
3: fucking jerk off too. Right. And they that's, like, you know, right. so they're, they're horny little and they, freaks. They make the joke even that this keeps happening, right? Yes. Because like the mother yes, is always right. changing in the window. Also, for yeah. listeners who are not familiar, I'm, I didn't earn the nickname from doing that. It was from being in the room and watching the boys do their thing. I just wanted to oh, clarify. Oh, you wanted to clarify that? Yeah, oh, just in case people know. are like, wait, okay, so are we saying that Ben earned that nickname by being a total fucking creep? Okay, I don't know, Ben, continue. but I mean,
1: it was, it was pretty fucking horny when you were watching us podcasting. That was a very <laughs> intimate act for the two of us, and you were just peeping in on it.
2: Okay. Um, yeah. He's yes. He's a he's a creepy little peeping Tom. He and he and uh, Marty takes his place. And look, I mean, what I just love the second Leah Thomas, Thomas is there. Thompson Leah Thompson right. is there, and. The, the whatever that further game is revealed uh, where it's like, oh, yeah. oh, like
1: the Calvin right. Klein joke. Right. Like another thing where you have to imagine the audience is already starting to levitate from the George McFly connection. The moment where they click, oh, no, now the movie is about the fact. It's so that-
2: transgressive. It's so fucking weird.
1: Right. And, 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 and it's the so thing, Freudian. Yeah. The thing Which I, I love. think the they're 80s. smart about. Right. A, it's very Freudian. But B, I the thing they're smart about is these are two. Very charismatic, very, very good-looking young actors, right? On a basic primal sense, it would make sense that they would be attracted to each other. A thing I think that Michael J. Fox plays really, really well is it's not that he is tempted to fuck his mom, but objectively, she is good-looking and he is a teenage boy who is getting attention from a pretty girl. That that, like, starts, like short-circuiting him every time it happens right that it's not just a complete revulsion that it's like such a confusing experience for him there also is that thing that like we you you hear about that phenomenon of like twins who were split at birth who then meet and fall in love and then find out that they're related that there's like that weird energy you have with relatives that if you don't know it you can misidentify as romance and jumping ahead of ourselves it is so smart and Zemeckis and Gail were like that's the moment where we realized we could pull the movie off the fact that she is revulsed once they kiss the fact that it's an immediate like oh that was gross I don't (laughs) know why but that wasn't satisfying at all the
2: movie doesn't work without that That's their saving grace. Yes. If the movie had them kissing and then she's like, what distracted and then... Why are you pushing me away? Right, Right. And the movie proceeds and she ends up, you know, with George McFly. Without that, I think people would just be like, Jesus, that's, you know, like, whereas, right, having that... It's just like right. There's this notion, like there's some sort of thing in the universe. She just knows this doesn't make sense. Like, it's or a when the spell is broken, yes. Whatever
1: the same thing is that draws her to him uh, also tells her you should not be kissing him. That you're misidentifying right. what that right. feeling of adoration oh, is. Oh god, it's so fucking weird, Americans. But that's like Americans. right? I know, but but he like. <laughs> The way they tell it, they were like, have we written ourselves into a corner? Is there no way to resolve this? And the moment you have that realization, it feels so obvious that, of course, that's what happens. But, yes, this first scene is so fucking good with the two of them in the bedroom where she's just being so aggressive in her sort of demure like who you, who me but that's knowing why it's that she's funny though running it yes right it would be lame if it was like you know not to bag on
2: Isla Fisher and wedding crashers but like you know that kind of a performance where it's someone who's just like the joke is that I'm so horny and in or like I like right the, Catherine Trammell and in, in basic instinct or yeah whatever. she's like climbing the walls right like yeah. I like how Leah Thompson is like kind of doing the you know cute 50s you know girl drinking a soda pop like thing but just that like it's yes. the things that meccas and gail are they're just kind of underlining like look guys it's the same with i want to hold your hand which is not uh, like you say it's not like a, a particularly dirty movie but it is kind of about like some weird sexual passion like
1: took over everyone's brain like this is it yes. is is what's that at the, on, at the root of this it, it just, I think, is a very masterful performance from her. And she had done a couple movies at this point. She did, like, Jaws 3D, and she did... Well, she, uh, she did
2: the, the the Cameron Crowe movie that, that he wrote. Uh, that's why the they wild cast her. Oh, fuck. The, uh, God, is that what it's called? Yeah, The Wildlife. I think it's called The she, It's the
1: sequel yeah, to she, Fast Times unofficially.
2: Right. It's because she's with Stoltz in that movie. So that's, that's why, they, why they, cast, they cast her. She was also right. in... Um, She's in Red Dawn.
1: And all the right uh, moves. Th- that was right. It.
2: And all, well, all the right moves. She's so good in that. That's a good yeah. movie. Or is it good? I don't know. It's like a classic. I think it's good. 80s yeah. teen. It's pretty but, good. But this um, is like, yeah.
1: she's been in four movies that, of some note at, up until this point. This is her best role. Like this has a lot to chew on as an actor that isn't yeah. just, you're the love interest. You're the cute girl. Because she's playing several things in every scene. And because she is such a story driver, like she's creating tension, you know, and conflict with all of her moves. Um, and and once again, like uh, Fox is such a good foil for her, a dance partner in understanding the right comic energy to throw back off of her. But now it's like, yes, this movie feels like you've set up this impossible conundrum, which is, man, Lorraine seems so fixated on trying to fuck Marty, and George McFly is such a space cadet. How is he ever going to get Lorraine off of him And how is he ever going to get George to look appealing to her? It genuinely feels like an unsolvable issue. It does.
2: And then I like that the movie, rather than being like, okay, well, this is what it's about. Yeah. Then kind of is like, well, all right, so that's the issue anyway now Marty's going to go find young doc. Now Marty's going to have run-ins with Biff. He's going to have the big chase, you know, like now we're yeah. going to have a bunch of other adventures that are all feeding into this, but we don't need it to be a Cyrano de Bergerac movie where Marty right. is like feeding his dad lines the whole time. And like, you know that, what I mean? That's like the thing which I'm, it could yeah.
3: easily be like totally. that, that could be your movie. Right. Young doc. Also, he's, like, oh, so old I that know. I, when I was a kid, I was like, is Doc 150 years old?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. He's one of those people where I feel like it's Didn't a little work. bit of the Max von Sydow thing. Where yeah, right, wait, a kid, I a kid, you're to do like how is Christopher Lloyd still alive? Wasn't he
2: 80 when Back to the Future was shot? (laughs) Lloyd was in his 50s, I believe, right? Because he's about 80 now. So I guess that you could sort of go with the concept of like, I guess Doc Brown's in his like early 60s, in the movie and like in the present and in his thirties. And he's just kind of like yep. an old
1: thirties. Like, right. Like that's the idea Look here. I think it is a deliberate and canny joke on their part. Cause on like the, the blu-rays and whatever, they have makeup tests where they gave him more prosthetics in the 1985 chunk of the movie where they were sort of putting, there's a test where you see Leah Thompson with the makeup she finally has Tom Wilson with the makeup he finally has in the 1985 stuff, and then Christopher Lloyd with that level of like prosthetic jowls and wrinkles and all of that. And it looks weird. You're greatly hampering his ability yeah. to. It, not make a good idea. Right, right. And I also think it's just so funny. When you cut back to the 50s and you're like, oh, this guy looks five years younger, <laughs> you <know? laughs> this idea that it's like and, and it feels fundamentally true where it's like he never would have felt like a young man. Like even when he was 20, yes. you know, this guy always had old man energy. Yeah.
2: Now I want to see what Christopher Lloyd looked like as a young man. I mean,
1: look, OK, you know what? He looked
2: like Christopher Lloyd. As yeah. a young man, I, I'm accepting this. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. But yes, he looks like Christopher Lloyd. I guess like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? That's, that's, right. that's about the youngest Christopher Lloyd I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it works. Just make his hair lighter. And like, I don't it's, care. I don't care. I find it, I'm, I find I'm, it I'm locked funny.
1: in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's very funny. I also, but then it's also, Oh, sorry. What are you going to say, it, Ben?
3: I just wanted to know, I feel like it's this version of doc, where he does something that you know I love. He calls um, an inventor, uh, he calls a Tom Edison? Yes. It's a great joke. Sorry, I just had to. It's much like your Dan Lewis joke. Well, of course, we're very good friends.
1: There's familiarity with, like, proper nouns like that, but then... They said, like, the big rule that Galen Zemeckis applied for Doc Brown is he never uses the smaller word when there's one available. So even, like, he will spend two sentences explaining something that could be conveyed with one saying. Like, in the sense that when Doc Brown is trying to help Marty realize that he needs to get his parents together— He's standing in Mm -hmm. front of a poster Mm -hmm. that says, like, enchantment under the sea dance. And he goes on this whole thing about, Mm -hmm. like, some sort of design social function in which young people are meeting. (laughs) Like, the word (laughs) dance is there, and he doesn't say it. And they were like, that was always a comedic game we were playing, is that he'll take the longest possible route to get to something that could be very colloquial. Um, But yes, this scene in the house where it's like, okay, now we're seeing... The version of Doc Brown if he never got his shit together. As chaotic as the guy seemed in the 80s, this guy is just, like, a completely paranoid maniac, you know? Who's like, yeah. this wound on his head, walking around his home with a bathrobe and a tie on, like, in this giant mansion by himself. Yeah,
2: it's like... Why doesn't he seem threatening? Because he doesn't. I think when you're a kid, there's just something inherently lovable about Christopher Lloyd, except for We Framed Roger Rabbit. Obviously, we'll get to that. But right, like, don't you know what I there's mean? There's an innocence like, to this character. There's some kind there's of like childlike fun grandpa innocence.
3: energy. Yeah, I think there's it's an innocence. the costuming. It's how eccentric I mean, he's, he is, but yeah. he's, it's wearing colorful clothes. Like, he looks like a weird adult. Right. Yeah, he looks like a
2: weird adult. Like, sometimes kids are afraid of old people because whatever, like, you know. Old people can be kind of freaky, like, and yeah, he's got that opposite energy of their kids just like, yeah, yeah, I, I get this guy. This guy is on my wavelength.
1: That's the other thing with the makeup test is he's got normal hair and he's the one like he said he got the script and much like RoboCop, his agent sent him and he looked at the script and he said, back to the future, fuck this and didn't read it. And it was like three weeks later that a friend was like, you got offered a movie like, Chris, don't turn something down just because you think you don't want to be in a teen sci-fi comedy. And then he reread it and right, was like, right, I right. have an Stop idea of what
2: I could so do. right.
1: Right. He goes to Zemeckis and he's like, Lithco, I'm going to pitch him clear, what I do with
2: the Lithgow was the yes. first choice. We we didn't acknowledge that, but Lithgow was the first choice. And there are a lot choice.
1: of other people, like Walken, who I feel right, like yeah. have been thrown out. Klaus Kinski right, maybe right. was thrown out at one point. Like, anyone Hello. who was sort of, like, that wild in this time period. But right. he was... Not low on the list, but he was not their first choice. He disregarded it at first, goes to Zemeckis and is like, look, this is what I would do. I like the idea of him being like Albert Einstein or Leopold Stokowski, where he's got this sort of fun, exuberant energy. He's got that sort of like mania to him that feels uh, affectionate and somewhat adorable. And Zemeckis was like, yeah, right and gave him carte blanche to do whatever the fuck he wanted. And in most takes, he's doing things that surprise people, things that he wasn't doing in rehearsals that he's discovering in the moment. And it, it it's helps, especially because it's good so much of the comedy comes from him being in his own little ecosystem and Marty reacting to him as the audience surrogate. But this like, scene, this whole extended set piece of the two of them in the house, Marty having to win him over, giving him the emotional speech about the flux capacitor... And then Doc figuring out all the pieces, being so excited that Mm -hmm. time travel works, knowing he's going to amount to something in his life.
2: Right. That's the weird thrill of it. Right. Because he's just done the brain machine that didn't work. Like, and he's obviously, you know, thinks he's a crackpot. Yeah.
1: Right. And you're like, he's like, he must be the black sheep son of a very wealthy sort of higher echelon (laughs) family in this town. He has money for some reason
2: that's not. Due to his acumen.
1: Right. What a shame that the brown kid fucked up.
3: A home lab is always like just, again, a sign of a really weird person. Yeah. Do you think you should have a home lab? Yeah, for sure. I wanted to buy a bunch of chemicals, which you can just get online.
1: You have a, ben, a garage?: ben, You should see, right?: You shouldn't acknowledge these things. Yeah No, actually, there should a, not be a trailer. thing. Right. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't pull a woodward on yourself, Ben. <laughs> uh, that's the other thing I love is that, like he's got this big mansion. you see the newspaper headlines of the house burning down back in the 1985 timeline. But in the 1985 timeline, he just lives in the garage that used to be next to this house. Like the house is gone. The garage was his lab. And now the garage is also his home. Like he's like downsized, (laughs) whether it was through an accident gone array or a insurance scam. It's like, everything's just become this lunatic willing to burn away like his family's legacy in the name of uh, science and, and the joy when he figures it out and then does that, like point to the camera back to the future. Like he is, Two degrees off from staring at the audience and doing, like, a Vincent Price House of Wax. Let's also acknowledge just the
2: confidence this movie has of the very bold logo to, you know, title logo right at the start. You know what I mean? Like, a Spielberg movie doesn't do that usually. Actually, like, he's just like, we'll just have the title in, like, pretty regular font. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, this is, like, this movie is branding itself. Yeah. Yeah and of course then is giving itself a sequel without even knowing if it's going to get one right at the right. end. You know what I mean? Like there is that weird swagger to this movie that I love. Totally. Totally.
1: And, the, and that stuff helps, you know, in the first 20 minutes that something bigger is coming, that this isn't yeah, just sure, going to be a movie right. this is getting just sad, laid.
2: Sad sack. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Right. Um, um,
1: so yes. now the pieces are in play.
2: Yep. Yeah. And, and there's the Biff sequence, which is just fun. Biff sequence is yeah. fun. It's great. It's great to watch him take care of Biff.
1: Yeah. And as you said, like the weird he gives you such good little glimpses of insecurity when he fucks up a joke. But there's also the confidence with which he barrels into every saying he doesn't actually know all the make like a tree and leaf things. Uh, But you're also setting up Biff. As I said, I do love how in this movie Biff is just like, well, he's my dad's shitty boss. And back then he was my dad's shitty bully. And that the Back to the Future franchise, especially when you expand into shit like the comics and the video games and the animated series, Biff becomes like this mythic force in the universe. Like whoever the Tannen is in any time period is somehow the embodiment of all the worst qualities that this a person is, could have. The most oppressive this force. Is why,
2: this is why I, whatever. The, the extended universe has never attracted me, but...
1: I, that's I love all that that's shit. Funny. I'm obviously more invested in Back to the Future as like a universe. But Gale, I think, also has always like shepherded all that expanded stuff and overseen it, but also very clearly communicates like the three movies are the thing. Everything else we do could fit in with it, but it's really fun thought experiments. It's alternate timelines. It's what if. And so I like that stuff. It doesn't feel like it makes the three movies any less sacrosanct. Uh, or, or make them sackers. You know what I'm saying? And no,
2: you're right. But I mean, that's why I'm happy. That's how I feel about all this stuff. I'm like, Does it, is it actually part of this or not? And they're like, oh, not really. I'm like, okay, well, then I don't care.
1: That's I like that they're less precious about
2: it. uh That's how I feel
1: about Star Wars. Totally.
2: All right. Yeah. The final sequence. It's the dance, Griffin. The dance well, slash,
1: you know, Clock Tower. I want to say. Well, what? Okay. To the point you were making That for most movies Like with this concept It would be 45 minutes of Cyrano That would be the main meat of the movie This essentially has two scenes mm-hmm. I mean you have the scene Back at the mall shop Where he tries to get his father To deliver the speech And it's the Lorraine You're my density thing Right that doesn't work The, the, Cyr- that's the Cyrano attempt doesn't work Abandoned Right Gets the into a life- fight with Biff
3: Yeah The life vest joke is so fucking good all those jokes are so good. Tab yeah. free,
1: yeah. Yep. Or tab put on my tab. Pepsi free. All that shit. Yeah. yeah it's uh, all heavy. Great. Like all that stuff is fun. Um, that of course leads to uh, the the Biff um, uh, creation of the skateboard chase sequence and Biff getting maneuvered so fucking hard, which feels like a very Ben move. I imagine when like IRS agents come to audit you, you'll you'll fucking maneuver them, Ben. <laughs>
3: I would love to do that. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. he literally got shit on.
1: Well, uh, once again, I'm not saying that the IRS should look into Ben's finances. They're entirely above board. And he doesn't have chemicals in his garage.
3: No, I do not. And yeah, the LLC I formed, everything is uh, you know, good good.
1: Good. But like that, any of the the vehicle sequences, the car stuff, the skateboard stuff, it as Bob Rafelson would say, cuts like butter. And it's partly because Zemeckis is so good at the visual math of this stuff. But also they talk about Mm. the benefit of them choosing to shoot on the back lot is as they were assembling stuff, it was very easy for Zemeckis to do pickups. Because that location was always there, so they were continuing to shoot pickups. Right, you can just be like, oh, let's go back over sequence. there. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Right. That makes sense. He would watch an assembly yeah. and he'd go, "Oh, you know, be cool. There should be sparks on the skateboard." And then they would go back two weeks later and shoot just the sparks, and then cut that back in and go, "What else could we use?" So all these sequences where it's like, you know, the final race of trying to hit eighty-eight miles per hour, where you're like, "This road is so small. There's no way he has this much room to drive." But they're through. Through blocking, through fl- framing, through editing, through sort of using movie logic and time, they're able to convey to you the sense that there's enough room to traverse here. Um, but the scene, there's, there's that scene where he tries to give him the talk, and there's the scene where he goes to George's, like, backyard, and he's giving him the big pep talk with, like, the, the clothes dryers stuff like that, right? Like, but that's pretty much all you have of that you have the scene uh, obviously where after he wakes up in the bedroom with the Calvin Klein where he has dinner with Lorraine's family. But that's his only big Lorraine scene. Like the movie is so good at giving you just the bare minimum you need of that because what it really wants is to save its final 50 minutes for the two things that matter. The dance and getting back to the future.
2: Uh, yes. Now. Of course. The film's. Ultimate story device for how George and Lorraine get together is that Biff (laughs) straight up locks Lorraine in a car and fucking attacks her. And it's another thing that I feel like is so, it's so often remarked on now as like, it's crazy that that happens in back to the future. And I'm always like, it's a hundred percent the point that that happens. Not, it's not like some weird, like 80s thing where like oh well you'd never see that in a movie today i'm like again this all feels part of the whole fabric of like biff isn't just like you know a a teenage bully who shoves you in your locker or whatever like he's a a malevolent person
1: yes well okay the
2: spiritual evil might be (laughs) that's what comes later but i'm just saying like it's like Zemeckis is like these fucking people run the world in the 80s now, and these guys are creeps and yes. like they're awful. Like, you know, he's a he's a bad person and he's doing a terrible right. thing. Right. And George, Absolutely you know, finds his inner courage, and that's that's right. great. And he confronts him and like that's great. And it totally lands as a moment for the audience of like, yeah, of course. Now they love each other. Like, great, like problem solved. It's got that Zemeckis. Totally rube goldberg like great the circle's been closed but it also just i love how you're like for this episode you're just like laying out everything that works about back to the future and i'm just occasionally bursting in to be like and it's the point is that america is shitty and horny and bad <laughs> totally like, that, like that's right. like my take
3: yeah right could i be critical I, I just the only thing is the violence, right? It's like yeah. you know, a punch is like Indiana Jones, right? It sends them flying. Yeah, he like pulls
2: up his fist and whacks him, and that's that. You're right. It, it's yeah. suddenly very comic booky or whatever. You know, it's very clean.
3: It does that a little bit like with sexual assault. Her. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's the only I mean, thing I do yeah. feel like seeing it now. I'm like,
1: oh
2: god,
3: it would be presented <laughs> differently
1: this. now. Own assumes. I, I'm. I'm a guy. I'm speaking from the perspective of being a guy. I have a big sort of opposition, uh, immediate sort of revulsion to movies that I feel like use sexual assault as too easy of a plot point, especially when it's like catalyst for revenge or things like that. I, I think there's something to the fact that the movie is about avoiding that, that it's about preventing that, and that I also think it doesn't feel like it's treating it flippantly like i i understand what you're saying ben but i also feel like there's the moment when and you have to remember that george thinks that it's going to be marty pretending to do this and that he's going into a play acting situation in which he's having to save her from something with zero stakes i think the moment that gives this weight for me and makes me feel like it is not treated insensitively is george opens the door he sees Biff turn around with the look of like, don't you fucking dare. Yeah, you're meaning, you're a bug to me. Right, yeah. Right. He locks eyes with Lorraine and Lorraine gives him a look of actual fear, of actual dread and panic. And and Thompson conveys the weight of the situation of if you walk away because you're afraid of getting punched in the face, I will be assaulted. And that's the moment for me that makes it work that doesn't make it feel like it's just plot maneuvering you know that it has some basis and respect for the characters That it's treated as this is going to be a horrific thing uh not too cartoonish even if biff is so silly i think she gives yeah. it the proper amount of weight um, and it that. also defines george as a character that it's like as much as this guy is so capable of being put under the thumb by society like there's a little deleted scene that's small but really fun after you see biff chewing out george in the present day as his boss where this guy knocks on the door and he's like hey george my uh my girl is selling a uh, peanut brittle for the girl scouts you want to buy like 30 crates of it and he's like oh, yeah i guess so and then he's like see honey i told you we only have to go to one door this guy will buy the whole supply And then you see him, it's still in the movie, pouring a bowl of peanut brittle. Yeah, he pours the peanut brittle. And when you see that in the movie, you're just like, is this guy just a fucking child? Like, why is he just eating
2: peanut brittle out of a bowl?
1: It works as a dead end, but it speaks to their idea of just like, this guy has never stood up for anything. He does whatever anyone tells him to do. And the fact that Biff looks him in the eye and says, walk away, McFly, and that he has a moral code. As much as he's a coward... He has looked Lorraine in the eyes, and he will not be able to live with the conscience of knowing he let this happen. And that what is what defines him. You know, at this point, I think truly the thing that motivates the punch, because it's a real punch, and he knows the real repercussions could be in store for him, uh, is not trying to impress Lorraine because he wants a, a dance. It's that he doesn't want to allow this to happen. I think it is a selfless decision for him, which is right. why— she falls for him and why this is a defining moment that ripples throughout this character's entire life and changes his behavior for the rest of his life
2: um right but it is it is stupid that that marty plays johnny be good and then uh chuck Berry's cousin calls chuck Berry on the phone that part's stupid
1: it's stupid and gail gail and zemeckis write it off as sometimes a cigar is just a cigar shit I think they're right
2: it, it I am sure they did not intend to suggest that no. the origin of rock music was Marty McFly. They're doing a cute joke. it's fine it it yes. I get the function of it as a cute joke, and I also get that like let's end this movie with a fucking concert, a you know a musical number. this is a high school movie. they'll kiss, and then we'll have the clock tower sequence. I get that. It's just, it's just fine to mock it now. It's, it's worthy of mockery now. Totally. And of course, totally. and hey, also yes. your cousin Marvin is also worthy of mockery. It's I mean, just funny. That's one all. One of the best lines of all time. Yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, right. The the semiotics of the implications of the rock and roll thing are fucked. I don't think it was conscious, but I also think no, obviously cons- we're living in a time right we, now we where mock we're it. trying to we take must greater it. stock of these just things. just mockery. No, no, no. We, we must must mock mock don't need to turn right. it
2: into a think piece. It's just, we can mock I'm it. I'm not turning it into it's a mock-able. think piece. I, I mean, like, it's not serious. It's like, it's not as... It's, it's not just serious. It's just so no. stupid. No, right. no.
1: They're right, the offensiveness of it is the flippiness of it, but it's not deeply offensive to me. And I also think when you have a movie like this that is so poignant and is largely perfect, the things like that, like... This is a movie where we analyze every aspect of what the movie is saying and why it works and why it doesn't. So obviously when you have a film that people care enough about, then you start to get into like, so what is it actually saying? In the same way that Crispin Glover, one of the many things he fought with Zemeckis about that led to him not being in the second one was that he hated that George was successful at the end of the movie. That he felt like it was this very capitalist message of like well now he's rich at the end of the movie and they have this very upscale suburban lifestyle and that shows that I mean, everything's good rather than him being happy it, because it, of his it, own it, internal life
2: right it's fair to draw like to 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 be mad i get what he means because it's like right the answer shouldn't be like happiness and confidence means you'll end up wealthy because that does feel like a right. very sort of reagan-y 80s like you totally. know message to end
1: on and but and says we're in that's a movie. Conscious joke. That's satirical for him. Right? It's like their happy ending is this very eighties hollow version of a happy ending. I think the rock thing doesn't have any pointness behind it. It's just cute for them.
2: It's it's that he gets that dumb fucking Toyota truck, right? Like that's right. that's right. the right. ultimate right.
1: prize, right? Right. That's that's a little bit cynical on their part. The Johnny B Good stuff isn't, uh, and the, the cousin Marvin thing for me is just like I respect your cousin Marvin. They, that they're like, look, we're not going to take five minutes to explain how he links up to Marvin Barry. Do it as an elegantly as possible, but get it done as quickly as possible. It's me, your cousin, Marvin, Marvin Barry. Beautiful. I forget That's who it is, but I have Harry a Waters Jr. Well, see, I always thought it was Harry Waters Jr., but maybe it was another member of the band, but would always start off his class in college as a professor showing people that scene.
2: Um, I'm not sure. I, all I know is that Harry Waters Jr. originated the Belize role in Angels in America, I think before it was on Broadway, before Jeffrey Wright played yes. it. Yes. Um, I think Maybe that's right. in San public. Francisco or wherever. No. Well, I don't know. Because I, I, oh, like I think it originally yes. played in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I think but anyway, right. that's just funny. Anyway. That, yeah, those um, are his two big roles.
1: And it's also, you want to see Marty have a slightly personal win. You know, like because you've seeded the, the rock stuff from the beginning, it's like you want to see him do something really fun that's just kind of for his own enjoyment where the stakes of the rest of the movie are like the space time continuum. Because otherwise, the, those small personal wins are for the other characters.
2: I mean, there's also in the movie, there are these stakes of like, oh, no, what if they don't kiss? Like they need a song to dance to and the band can't go on break right now. Like, but like you just it's like this has been such a rock around the clock time type, type of movie, like end on a dance number. That's great. Give us give us yeah. a musical number to, to, to you know, as ra- like an 11 o'clock number. That's 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 great. And then the, the clock tower sequence. Which right, is he gets out of there
1: just in time. He has that like, final scene. I well, th- don't jump over to it immediately because the the final moment with him and George and Lorraine is really nice. Okay, sure. Yeah, when he yeah, when that's he nice. when right. he says goodbye to them and they say like, "Will we ever see you again?" I'll bet on it. And then he he has to bring up before he leaves the like, if you ever have a kid, and he accidentally breaks.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a fire. He lights <laughs> the carpet on fire. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Right, uh, right, but it's go. also, it's like everyone has those memories of like, if I could go back in time, this is the thing I would fix. It was this one time I really fucked up in my parents' eyes, you know? Mm, like right. everyone yeah. has an incident of like a parent's disappointment that burns into your memory that you wish you could undo. And that that's his final lasting thing. But also, like you genuinely believe that George and Lorraine like each other at that point. Their chemistry is actually good in that final scene. For sure. So then you go to the clock tower where Doc Brown has already been trying to set things up Uh, while Marty's at the dance. He changes back. Uh, He's trying to rig everything up because, of course, what they need is the bolt of 1.21 gigawatts, mispronounced, uh, of electricity to power the car to get it at the moment with 88 miles per hour. It's just such a clean visual with, like— that wire arm and where the wire uh, between the poles is and just like these two things need to touch at the moment that he's going at this speed it's this number and also the lightning hits and the fact that you've set it up so perfectly with the clock tower with the flyer that he gets at the beginning of the movie where he has to write down Jennifer's grandmother's phone number like all that stuff is just so well seated and they talked about like the nuclear testing site if that's where they travel forward in time, it becomes a bigger event, right? Like nuclear tests were a big event. There weren't a bunch of them and they would have been more a part of like American history versus this being something that was big for this town, but small in the grand scheme of America. So the idea that it's like local legend, right? We know Um, exactly where this legend's going to hit at this one time.
2: Well, you know what time it's going to hit because it like freezes the clock. It's all great. I love it. I love. I, I, it's it's yeah. it's what I love about this sequence is that the, one thing needs to happen. It's all set up, and so the sequence is just about stretching that as far as you can go. Like that's what's so right. delightful about what Zemeckis is doing. Like it's you know, the all, Toy Story every stuff obstacle of you're doing yeah, a little exactly. wrong. Oh come right. on! Oh, oh you know like like oh no now the thing's tangled. Oh no you know like just yeah. just pure playing the audience like a violin stuff just you know right. you can't help and, but have your heart in your mouth even though you know of course it's going to work out the movie's ending right of course this will work out
1: but lloyd the little red so herring will come later
2: that's yes so good right
1: he's very he's funny like, physical actor. actor like his, yes right. yeah. his super exaggerated shocked faces the way he plays all the beats of the things on his leg like he's sort of doing like Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton stuff. I'm not just saying Harold Lloyd because he's hanging from a clock, but like, you know, that feeling of the high wire, like his name is also Christopher Lloyd. That's very just pointing that out. Yeah. Um, But, but the stakes of every small thing where the cable is all that shit. And, you know, there half of it is like inserts where they put that pedestal on a soundstage. But half of it, especially in the wide shots, you can see that he's actually at the top of that set. And he's hanging from that Mm -hmm, high. mm -hmm. And he's like, even though I have wires and harnesses and whatever, he's like, if I fell, it was really going to hurt. And also, there's, like, lightning. There's a wind machine. There's thunder. Michael is, like, very far from me. I didn't have to act at all. Like, the the stakes were there in acting. It's so
2: small stakes- in a way that's just so charming. I know this is an obvious
1: thing to say, but it's true, isn't it? You know, like, but better. Just, it, it, yes, in a way that I don't think this film would work if it was the nuclear testing site where it's like. Oh no, it wouldn't. No, of course
2: not. All not, that shit just sounds like you know. It's like strip it out, strip it out. Like you know, which is yeah. what this movie
1: did. Just, just take and, all and that, that embellishment. Literally out. The only reason that didn't happen was because of budget. It literally only happened, right. got canned out because of budget, maybe even only once they decided to reshape I the mean, first five weeks.
2: I mean, not to dispute the purpose of our podcast, but it's kind of the argument against the blank check, right? Like it's the argument for the yeah. constraints. Like you find these creative ways to work around stuff. Obviously it, it is not that this yes. argument is not this podcast is pro blank check. Exactly. It's just
1: interested in blank checks, but yes. I'm just saying isn't it, it that is. Crazy? It's both. It's both. This is one of those movies that like, unlike something like Fury Road, I bring up cause it's a recent example of a movie that is like, This guy knew exactly what he wanted to make. He had it like in his drawer for 20 years and he just willed it into existence. And it was the exact version of what he had in his head to the degree that even the actors working on it couldn't see what they were doing versus this movie, which is half that type of clear vision. They'd worked so hard on the screenplay. They had done like 150 drafts. It's so well honed, but also everything they had to surrender ended up being the right choice and they adapted really really well it's a perfect balance of the two Um, in a way that I think movies like this often are you know not getting a working shark on Jaws like all these things where it's the combination of the right people at the top of their skills cresting in their ability combined with circumstances outside their control that force them to be resourceful and that sort of survival instinct kicking in and leading to greater creativity Um, and yes it's like we see the grid the distance is so short, but they make it feel like Marty is driving this extreme distance. Like Doc is never going to get the cable plugged in time. And when it happens, it is so thrilling.
2: Incredibly satisfying. It's such a good effect, too. I love the visual effect, oh. like the noise, the crackling, the, just the way everything, so- you know. And that's sort of like they would have it's like they're reversing an explosion or something like they had that kind of like smoky yeah. thing
1: that kind of goes backwards. Great. And and not to sound like one of these guys, but it's a perfect example. Uh Oh, I don't know what you mean. I'm just excited by
2: whatever the mainstream
1: media telling us. No, I was uh not to sound (laughs) like one of these guys, but uh, (laughs) this is one of those things where if this was done ten years later and they had CGI at their disposal, the effects would be less good. The the having greater options for how you could render the time travel would be overdoing it. The fact that, like, they're not going through the circuits of time, the fact that it's just the combination of the sounds, the way the lightning crackles around Mm -hmm. it, all that sort of stuff, the ice, which you see the first time, but then because it was such a pain in the ass to do, every successive time, they limit how cold the car is when it's coming out. But for me, like, an incredible Zemeckis-Gale story choice that shows how good their instincts were emotionally at this point in time is that unlike the other Things like unlike traveling from Marty's POV from 85 into 55, when Marty disappears, when the Trail of Flames is left, they stay with Doc Brown. And you have that moment that for me is like when they should have handed Christopher fucking Lloyd the Oscar. I get why they didn't. It's the kind of performance that's easy to write off as fluff at the time, especially because it's comedic and in a big, broad movie. But yeah. the big, wide shot of the completely empty town square with the flames behind him, realizing that he's just done it, that he's created time travel, and they play the softer version of Mm -hmm. the main Silvestri theme, and he starts dancing in the middle of the street is so thoroughly touching to me. It's that thing I fucking love. It's it's like Billy Elliot finally dancing, where it's just like this person who just had one dream in their life Against all odds, pulled it off. They did the thing that everyone told them they couldn't do. Um, I just think that sequence is so well done. And Lloyd's performance is so exuberant and genuine. And he kind of dials down the cartoonishness for that one moment because you actually want to care about this guy uh, Mm. and feel like uh, this is an important win for him.
2: And you want him to live. There's all the Falderall with the yeah. letter and, you know, like, you know, all that. I can't look, uh, You
3: know, I'm going to start uh, yeah, that would sending... That damage
2: the space! Uh. Would I'm going to start sending best,
3: people letters that say don't open until, like, 20, yeah, it's, May, right, it's a 20, great bit. 29, right. I recommend everybody do it, and then you don't even have to write anything that's that good inside, but just, just having just write, someone like that has to hold on to it. Yeah, write butts.
1: Just write terms, butts, okay? In terms of that, like, ephemeral, uh, uh, Ethan Hawke, welcome to Earth, like, movie star line reading shit, I don't think there's a better moment of that than Michael J. Fox going like, oh, God, if only I had more time. More time, Marty, what are you talking about? You're in a time machine! Is so fucking good. <laughs> and that's a hard moment to pull. But that the idea that he's gonna, like, fuck with it, that he's already written a letter which Doc Brown has ripped up, that he goes back... A little bit earlier, but the car won't start. He has to run. He makes it just there in time. A thing, having seen this movie 30 times, I had never noticed before is when they go back and they repeat him running to the mall, the signage is now it's the Lone Pine Mall as opposed to the Twin Pine Mall. It's the first sign that he's altered the timeline in Mm. some way. It's funny. Very subtle. Because up until now, everything else feels like it's largely the same. Also, Hill
2: Valley, it's a funny name funny name hill valley um, funny yeah you know
1: yeah and it's i like love the, the inner of history of hill valley as a town i love their sort yeah, of legacy all the, of things, all the like little Wilson, tricks yeah. power right all the stuff uh, they kind of sneak in right they yeah, built yeah, that yeah. stuff out well in the next two films um but he runs of yes. course he's just a second too late he can't avoid the, the the can't stop doc brown from getting shot but when he runs up. Doc has the bulletproof vest and the taped-together letter, which he's held on for 30 years. And what a nice, touching moment. Everything worked out great. And now— I thought, what what the hell? I'll play Festa. It's—it's—right, it's it's beautiful that's like—I don't know. Sometimes you want to do the emotional thing. We're only human. As much as he tries to be like, I'm this crazy mad scientist and time is the most important thing to abide by, it's also like, you're my friend, Marty. You didn't want me to die. I'm going to stay alive.
2: You need it to be that. You need it to be. Yeah. I, although I'm, and maybe this is from Mulaney too. I can't remember the Mulaney. I haven't seen the Mulaney back to future bit in a while, but like it is wild that he's like, well, I'll wear a bulletproof vest. They can't shoot me anywhere
0: else.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like is Marty specifically like, yeah, but anyway, it doesn't matter. You need it to be that versus Marty triumphantly running them over or whatever, because yes, I don't know. That would just feel clean in a way that would be kind of fr- like, I, I, yeah, I agree. you need the weird friendship it's, it's movie choice logic. of like, yes, it's you know too what?
1: perfect. It's too. The kid wrote me a
2: letter. It must be yep.
1: important, right? But also, it would if you had Marty go back, and this time he's wearing like a full Jeremy Renner bomb disarming suit. You don't would be, have well, the reveal. of... Okay. Ba- well, wait a second. That
2: would be funny, though. For Back to the Future, if he was four, wearing. Sure yeah, he was
1: wearing a hurt locker suit. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah. You can't shoot me anywhere. Uh, No, it's, you need the reversal of the same events. Yeah. Um, and I guess probably Marty wrote in the letter, your chest roughly from here to here. Yeah. It's basically kind of like consider
2: it like a strike zone. It's kind of shoulders to hips, right? Like that's what you want to protect. I didn't get a full look at your wounds, but it looked like that was the, the major area. Um, and then yes, of course, as you mentioned right now they're rich uh right. now now biff is an obsequious you know the uh, car detailer or he's whatever right, right. you know he's, yeah. he's getting bossed around uh chris and yeah. glover is playing it like almost like American Psycho or whatever. He's got this like weird kind of like eh,
1: look in his eyes. They're like, that uh, was yeah. absolutely the hardest thing to get Crispin Glover to do. Like he didn't want to wear the outfit. Imagine. He didn't want to play right. those scenes. He didn't want to play a normal guy. Like all that stuff. He hated it, hated it. He, he hated doesn't it. It
2: seem normal though. He just seems weird in a new way, which is, yes. I'm glad they threaded the needle on that. Crispin got to do his weird thing zemeckis got his plot point, like whatever it yeah and out. i
1: think it's yeah. it's like an artificially neat ending which only works because they undercut it with doc brown coming back at the end which of course was not meant to be a sequel setup was meant to just be a funny joke of like what could possibly now happen with time yeah. travel open
2: i'm sure they were like I'm, they weren't anti a sequel right but certainly it's not like Back to the Future 2, where they're making the movies back to back and they know there's going to be a sequel. I, I think they You're, literally it totally functions as a,
1: a just a clever ending. Yeah. But they also say that, like, when the sequel was announced, they were like, oh, fuck, we now have to do the future. Like we we made this promise right. that we weren't thinking we were ever going to have to make good on.
2: But of course you do the future. Come on, Zemeckis. Yeah. What are you going to go, you know, come on. I mean, well, of course, Zemeckis is so horny to do a Western, and we will talk about that. But, we'll talk about that. Uh, you know, the future. Because you know, when David- I was a kid, I was like, show me the future. That's what I wanted to see, where you got, like, visor glasses and all this.
1: And it still has ended up being one of the most sort of, like, uh, uh, sort of, like, I don't know. Lasting visions of the future. I still feel like people relate what we have gotten and what Mm. we haven't gotten to that notion of 2015. I feel like it's cited all the time. You know, what it predicted correctly, what it was wrong. I haven't seen, right? No, 100%. I haven't seen part two
2: probably Mm. since I was like 12 or 13 years old. Great. So I'm very excited to rewatch it um, because. Like both the sequels, honestly. Haven't seen them in a very, very long
1: time. Very, very interested to see
2: how they talk about them now.
1: Yeah. Because, like, when I saw this for the first time, I knew there were three of them. And when they released it on VHS, after the car flies off, after roads were going, we don't need roads, and the test audience runs, it stands up and starts it, cheering. Ending on your best line, outrageous, very smart. Yeah. And his line reading, I mean, the timing of the flipping yeah. down of the glasses, all that stuff. And um, the visual effect and everything. Yeah. When they, and then smash to, uh, uh, back in time, uh, back in time, uh, when they re-released it or when they released it on VHS, knowing that the sequel was going to happen, they put to be continued at the end of the first one. So sure. I saw it for the first time with to be continued. I feel like a lot of people in our generation saw it for the first time with to be continued. So I always viewed it as like, well, they knew, they knew, they knew watching it and trying to like view it out of context, pretending that. The sequel isn't a given that they didn't know what they were doing. It's also just a funny reversal to be like, well, they solved everything. Everything's neat. Everyone's happy. The present is great. And then Doc Brown being like, "Uh, no, time travels on the table, which means everything's getting fucked with. Everything's bad. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to iron out every small interpersonal issue, you know, (laughs) like the McFly family. Now the ripple effect of just like, oh, my son gets arrested. I need to fix that um it's fun it's funny uh i love it i love this movie uh on top of everything else it's crazy that both of the huey lewis songs in this movie are like bangers and were hits like there's that weird 80s thing where you had giant blockbuster movies that also had big artists writing like number one hit singles the luck of all of those things lining up is pretty wild to me because that rarely if ever happens these days should we play the box office game? We should play a box office game. Did this movie do well?
2: Uh, it did do quite well. In fact, it was one of the bigger movies of its year. It made two hundred and twelve million dollars domestically, the I believe.
1: Film of its year. I some probably. of
2: that might be from a re-release. Yes, it certainly was. Uh, I can't remember. It ended around two hundred million, and I think then made a little more yeah. in a re-release or whatever. Um, it made yeah, it made humongous amounts of money. It opened number one at the box office, eleven million dollars. On July Fourth weekend, I think it was a fourteen million four day weekend. That's all great. Now Griffin, as you may remember, this is the week before Thunderdome.
1: Oh right, okay. The other thing I just want to say is that test screening was so big, and Universal knew it was going to be such a hit. Yeah. Right. Right. It was supposed to be August, so they like had to do essentially 24-hour post-production, hire yep. two editors, four sound uh, editors, like all this sort of stuff. The movie was released in theaters 9 weeks after they wrapped filming. Like it's crazy and, uh, how rushed this movie was. And a couple months before Teen Wolf
2: as you wanted to clarify. One month before. Yeah. I think, yeah. Which
1: I had always thought that it was like Teen Wolf, a hit, but embarrassing. This is the thing that legitimized his film career when in fact it is that like Teen Wolf was largely a hit because Michael J. Fox was just fucking running the table. Like kids who had already seen Back to the Future three times were like, there's another Michael J. Fox movie? Um, Plays basketball. He's a wolf. Yeah. But for him it was embarrassing Um, versus he hadn't done it. Sure. Um,
2: number one at the box office. Back to the Future. Number two at the box office. So all of these movies are in the box office for the Thunderdome. Box office is all I'm saying, except for number five.
1: Back to the Future Uh, is number one for eleven out of the next twelve weeks. Pretty cool. Yeah, people wanted to see it. Uh, Number two, it's a western back in time. Yep. Secretly or out in the open?
2: Out in the open, just a brazen western. No, 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 no. Like a serious Western from a very serious Western Oh, is Western it Outlaw artiste? Josie Wells? No, but my correct director, Outlaw right Josie director. Wales, 70s. Plains
1: Drifter, I'm forgetting the no, 80s. No, you're, you're doing the, the 70s
2: ones. It's, it's an 80s Clint Western. I believe it is his only Western in the 80s. And it's hmm. a very good movie. I like it.
1: Hmm.
2: It's really stripped down. It's really, it's, you always forget this. I feel like we, this came up the other time. Oh, I
1: think I always forget this movie exists. What's the title of this movie? It's called Pale Rider. Right. Fuck. Right. Yes. I always forget to do this. I've never seen it. It's good.
2: Uh, Yeah. It's a good Clint movie. Uh, Number three. It sounds like me when I'm on the
1: subway. Hey. Hey. Pale Rider sounds like me when I'm on the subway.
2: Uh yeah because you're pale you ride the subway or you used to at least before pale, uh, pale the pandemic the Um yeah. number, number yeah. three of the box stuff is a big sequel to a
1: big movie in 1985 it's not mm-hmm. Beverly Hills Cop 2 that's too soon no Beverly Hills um, Cop in fact came out this year it, it, is it a number two it's a number two and is it a comedy? Is it an action franchise? Is it, it Rambo First Blood? Part two. Exactly. There we go. Exactly.
2: Um, number four at the box office. We brought it up. It was an Oscar winning film this year.
1: It, it won in an acting category? Is that why we, we brought it up?
2: Yes. We mentioned it's Oscar win. Yes,
1: exactly. It's not Prizzi's Honor? Nope. It is Cocoon. It's Cocoon. Another hit. I mean, these are all big hits. Big hit. Must have you felt know? satisfying for Zemeckis after getting fired off of Cocoon to fucking fold to, to Cocoon with like laundry at. Like, at Cocoon the box did office. well, but yeah. right.
2: Certainly nothing yeah. like Back to the Future. Yes, yeah. suplexed Now, it. Yes. Number five is a movie I just, I know, I don't know at all. It is from a major director, um, but I've never heard of it. Um how to describe? It's a jungle movie. It's a, like a guy searching for, I believe, his son in the rainforest or something. His son got like maybe kidnapped or or taken in by like r- you know native people in it's the a rainforest. Big movie star? And, no, it's not. I mean, he's an. Act, I'll tell you, the actor Powers Booth. Like you know, certainly an actor of the 80s I, but not I'm a major star yeah no you're never gonna, gonna get, get this Power. it's a john borman movie so you know a big director wow. um yeah. it's called the emerald forest
1: yep nope truly that's, that's never what I, that's heard of that movie. i didn't know it
2: and like john yeah. borman is someone we could ostensibly do on this podcast he's not high on our list maybe but like you know excalibur Right, like Hope and Glory, those are these Zardas, those are real blank checking movies. But uh, this one I don't know. That's it. You've also got I don't know, St. Elmo's Fire, The Goonies,
1: Fletch, another Spielberg ambling. Yeah, Fletch is working overtime, of course. Crizzy's Honor. I've been listening to the the Fletch soundtrack a lot recently. I don't know why. You've been been working overtime, you've been listening overtime. I certainly have been working overtime. I feel like I've been working under time these days. Maybe I'm trying to feel more inspired to put in the extra hours uh, on. Anything. I feel like I'm working overtime. Why don't you do some of my work? Well, well, well we've got to even this out. Yeah. I really want to great. write some think pieces about what's going on in media right now. It's really exciting. <laughs> I feel exactly. great about everything. You know how I like once <sighs> a year, I I start saying that I'm retired and I'm never going to work again and I'm unemployable. Y- you do say that often. Yes. Once every two Go years, ahead. maybe. I I really yeah. feel at this time. I really feel like I don't know if I'm ever gonna. Yeah. I'm just
2: gonna point out that this is not a moment to uh predict one's future.
1: This is that's a, why a, a quite I'm an saying I feel moment. this way. I'm not right, even just feeling like way. ugh, no one likes me. I'm feeling like what would it take to get me back on a set again?
2: Right, right, right. I don't know. Uh, you know, you know, next year, you know, could be
1: great. Hey you never know that's me that's my role in this yeah I want to start a podcast uh, like election profit makers where I bet against next year being good and you bet for it being good and somehow we figure out a way to tie financial rewards to that because I don't Mm. know at least maybe I can get rich while being miserable
0: Mm. yeah
1: Mm. that sounds fun like Ben do you think that's a
0: good
2: podcast people would listen to that wait where did Ben go Ben's fully gone
1: do you hear that, David? No. No, in the distance, I hear, I hear something. There's like a, I think he left his mic on. There's some sort of like whooshing sound or something. Oh, sorry. Hey, what's up,
3: guys? <laughs> just I just skateboarded into the podcast. Uh, you know, hanging oh on a car. God. now uh,
2: that is the sign that we are officially done. Uh, which is very yeah. exciting it for us. Off, we finally
1: checked that box. Um. Ben asked me to set that up. I was not aware that he was going to, for the listeners at home, kneel on top of a rolling office chair and pretend that yeah, it was skateboard. a skateboard. I thought <laughs> he, he, he put his feet ben on a actually skateboard. actually have a skateboard at home. Uh, no. He, he pretended to right. skateboard on a chair. Well, uh, that's this our has back been to the future episode.
2: <laughs> three-hour episode, one. Of
1: blank check. But it was back it's to the future. It's not three baby. hours. It's under three hours. And David, it had to be. This is a humongous movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's, it's not like the next movie. three movies
2: are small. Mm, yes,
1: I think this is even a little bigger. And I'll say for people who are upset that we didn't do things like merchandise spotlight or, or the theme park rides or any of that sort of stuff, we have two other Back to the Future movies to cover. I promise I will cover some of that appendix stuff in there, but this one I really want to focus on a dumb movie.
2: Yep. yep,
1: for sure. Back to the Future. It's a movie, David. It had Big to head. be. We couldn't. We couldn't change our past, e- even though the future is not yet written. This episode had to be two thirty plus. Mm, mm. It had to plus. be. It was always <laughs> yeah, written on the newspaper, and it never changed. All right. That's but cool. in general, I promise the show is about to get tighter. And I promise that to you, David. And I'm saying it on microphone to be held accountable. Folks, thank you all for yeah, listening. Yeah, guys,
2: just just a warning for listeners. We're going to try and tighten this show up. It's got a little
1: oh, whatever, right. slack. We're
2: losing our mind.
1: <laughs> Zoom started yeah. being a thing that made it impossible to podcast for an hour without feeling exhausted. And now it's made it so that somehow every episode becomes eight hours while also being exhausted. Uh Everything is bad. I'm betting on 2021 uh, also being bad. And thank you all for listening. Please remember (laughs) to review, subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Good for our social media. Thank you to Lane Montgomery for being our Marty McFly and jamming out with that cool theme song. Joe Bowen and Pat Rounds for our artwork. Go to blankies.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to our Shopify page for merch. New stuff will be added. Old stuff will be coming back in stock uh and and feel free to always hit us up on social media at blank check pod if you want to suggest things you'd like to see us make merch wise in the future next week a little movie called who framed roger rabbit with (sighs) the dough boys nick Wise, right baby mike mitchell it's a crossover people were speculating which episode they were going to be on uh it's that one talking doom uh, and David the episode is done you can relax yeah. oh, you can okay. write a, no end uh, always a, a think piece about any of the exciting things happening uh, in the entertainment this uh, world uh, I just love anytime something happens <laughs> I don't mean happens. to I,
2: I, complain about my job I'm lucky to have a job no it's you have fine. a great job
1: it's but fine. also anytime something happens you text me we're like texting back and forth on it and then you go like oh fuck wait I'm gonna have to write about this aren't I Blah, like when you realize you you you're gonna have to rules. call up with a take Blah. on stuff <laughs> It's Again, just, uh, not
2: complaining, difficult I have a nice to job, parse. my editors are nice,
1: and of course I was happy to write about Oscar rules. Yes, the rules. You love the rules. And as always. Doc! 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 Doc. Marty? Marty! 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 Molly!